Hello and welcome to episode 192 of The Great and Crowbar. It is the 8th of June 2017. My name is Chris Thurston and tonight I'm joined by Tom Francis. Hello. And Alex Wiltshire. Good evening. Good evening, gentlemen. <laughs> On the eve of E3, when truly there finally is basically no news, except there is sort of... There's, dri- there's dribbles. Dribbles. Mm. The little little phlegmy <laughs> precursors. It's the stuff that people wouldn't be interested in. <laughs> I don't think that's entirely fair to XCOM. <laughs> oh, <laughs> XCOM, you say? Yeah, so uh, this is good because this is something that's going to be announced on Monday, apparently. It's been teased today by Firaxis. Um, it's actually it's being announced on Monday at the PC Gamer Show at E3, um, mm. which this is the, the first year where I have no idea what's happening <laughs> at that show. So I'm not even pretending not to know now. I genuinely don't know. They're pretty good at keeping secrets. PC Gamer. You used to be good at keeping secrets. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't think I ever, ever blabbed about anything <laughs> that's coming up for the, for anything really, I think. Um, but yeah, so the, you know, they mentioned today that, or they announced today that, uh, 2K Firaxis would be at the show and then Firaxis tweeted, uh, the XCOM 2 logo with some spooky alien eyes behind it and the phrase, the real war starts now. <laughs> With no just... question mark. The, like, the question mark was implicit is mine. Um, the first war was, like, for the saving the Earth. So, <laughs> I mean, how real are we talking? Oh, I see. So the, now we're dealing with the you know, the actual aliens from their planet. Well, I mean, can I... I mean, I could... Uh, minor spoilers for the... So, XCOM 2 and XCOM 1 have really similar endings, which is because XCOM 2 is set in a world where XCOM 1 didn't finish. Yeah. Because if you finished XCOM 1, you got the good ending, and XCOM 2 is set assuming that XCOM failed and the world needed taking back. Um, and it, it does end with, this isn't really a spoiler for what actually happens in the plot, a very heavy teaser for sort of sea aliens in the sort of uh, Terror from the Deep. I think it was Terror from the Deep, wasn't it? The mm, XCOM yep, 1 yep. expansion. Yep. Um Sort of theme. Standalone. Expandalone. Expandalone. It's the only word worse than bookazine. (laughs) (laughs) Or fablet. (laughs) Well, I think fablet wins. (laughs) Mm. Anyway. um, So maybe they take it in that direction. I assume it involves the, you know, some sort of additional alien threat, perhaps. I mean, that's not... (laughs) (laughs) Spoilers. Yeah. As, you know, even as Julian Gollop returns to the um, genre... With a bucket of crabs. Um. <laughs> I'm excited because I wrote a blog post about what I didn't like about XCOM 2 and how I would fix it. And Jake Solomon tweeted to say, these ideas all belong to us now. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I assume they just made now. the game I asked for. <laughs> what did you ask for, Tom? Because my next question was going to be, what would you ask for? Um, uh, I wanted less snowballing like it's specifically about the the thing where a snowboarding snowballing <laughs> okay uh, is that the bit in final fantasy the ssx tricky sequence is just really out of place like especially when you lose your best <laughs> guy sectoid snowboard up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. we're coming after in skidoos <laughs> yeah exactly we have a crisis mission for you commander and this one's <laughs> radical <laughs> uh yeah and then uh, you lose your best guy because you've assembled an international tax- task force of amazing special forces operatives but not all of them can snowboard and that's not their fault and it's just a horrible way to die if you don't know what you're doing <laughs> sorry you were saying something my issue was that uh once you start snowboarding in xcom you just get so good at it <laughs> it's so easy to snowboard and then if you fail at snowboarding if you wipe out early on yeah. then it, it's even harder to snowboard from then on um 
and so my idea one of my ideas was um there's a bunch of stuff about how you level up and i think you should shouldn't keep increasing in health when you level up because that makes your more experienced guys even tougher and so you get the better you get the easier it gets um and also uh i suggested having like low profile missions like special missions that are on top of all the other things you can do you can also send some people on these missions but you can't send your best guys because they're well known now like the aliens are looking for them and it's like in a civilized area so you're going to have to get some people that they don't know are part of the resistance yet hmm i like the idea with xcom i think there's a i would prefer i think your advancement to be mostly located within the technology you have um where and the the skills of your personnel and maybe basic or like the traits that get applied to your personnel are as likely to be bad as good and people die more mm. often because i think you can you can attach kind of like my people have more health now my people are better shots now to their gear to an extent like i i have better armor as long as i can afford to yeah. keep producing it i have better guns as long as i can afford to keep producing it and that allows you to have the sort of lethality of the game turned up a bit without feeling like a game over because at the moment so much of the usefulness of an operative is on their unlocked skill trees and stuff which is one way of doing it but it means that you end up with that i have an a team situation yeah and the a team can solve anything mm. yeah my and, thing was partly inspired by the like one mission all my good guys were injured and so i sent my b team on that mission and that mission was amazing it was a complete like edge of your seat like white knuckle ride with a c- calamitous disasters and scraped through at the last minute and it was the most fun i had in my whole campaign and it was because it it was a bunch of shitty idiots <laughs> yeah exactly but like it feels like it's it's more it's, it may be easier to kind of provide those sort of highs and lows um more reliably if if your yeah if your power level was was attached to your gear which is kind of an yeah. idea to nick from of all things zelda because <laughs> that's something um you know like maybe you know i'm just this is totally just now a, a XCOM hypothetical design session that will <laughs> have no bearing on the thing they announced on Monday, but like, um, something I love about Breath of the Wild, which we still need to do our podcast about, Alex, is the fact that all your equipment can break or be lost or whatever means that you should equip the gear you need for the task you're trying to solve. Yeah. Which is obviously means something very specific in the context of a Zelda game, but it applies, I think, pretty interestingly to an XCOM game. Like, it should be that, um, you know, the threat of losing gear or having gear break in the field means that you gear your squad for the task they need to perform. So, you know, maybe a exfiltration mission or something like that is plain clothes and pistols. And that's because that makes sense. Mm. And that's easy to get in, but it's the same people, you know, and then for the big mission, you totally deck them out. Whereas I find that it just tends to be this sort of one escalation curve that everybody's on and everyone just ends up with a mega powerful, hyper power armored, minigun wielding mega man. Yeah. It's good for every situation. Yeah, because yeah. there's never a reason to kind of tune it up and tune it down and use the whole range. And I think yeah. that's how I would prefer XCOM to work, I think. Well, I don't think that you could probably do equipment breaking in the field and death. I think that's kind of lost too far, you know. I don't know. I mean, it depends on how easy it is to replace people and and how easy it is to replace gear necessarily, like... I think you kind of, you know, like Xbox is, is the famously the game where you care about, you know, your squad and you kind of build relationships True. with them. Yeah. You kind of, I would, I would hope that not too many players get, an, you know, an, an emotional attachment to their trousers <laughs> or There's, gun. I mean, so one of the DLCs adds a few unique weapons. So there's like a crossbow. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, uh, I can't remember what the other one is. Uh, oh, it's an axe that you can throw. Um, and those are just, you just get one of them forever. And if you like lose it in, combat then it's gone forever um 
that doesn't really end up being very interesting because the person you give it to is awesome <laughs> and so and it makes them better and so they never die i i should, really should know this because i have started playing the game several times and i keep getting i just get lost at the start but if is it like the original um ufo where you um equipment is on the ground and when you, if you're one of your people dies you'll need to, if you want their equipment you'll need to go over to their bodies and pick it's, it up i think it's tied to their body so you can't take it from them but if you take their body out right. you'll get the kit back and you'll get the stuff back right i think yeah. that's right i think that, yeah i think that is right yeah i mean I'm, i think it's more i think the way to think about it is to make um i i would say that sort of micromanaging your equipment to be that efficient with like what you bring and what you risk would be like high-end play so you can take everything to every mission if you want but maybe on a harder difficulty setting you're encouraged to try and achieve things with the minimum risk to your really good gear which i think would be a a nice way to make it more interesting over time Mm. um like i think it's it's more of a tuning issue like I, i i think i think people get attached to their characters kind of regardless i think there's you don't need a really strong and pronounced sense that this person's amazing now to make someone care. Like, to be honest, as soon as you let someone name a character and pick what colour hat they wear, they probably already care about them, <laughs> I would argue. I think there's still value in having uh, certain aptitudes. I think yeah, it'd be good sure. to have skills, you know, locked down skills on characters anyway. So, like, you know, the sniper who's who can take a second shot or, you know, can do, you know... For sure. Like, I, think, I think there's room for that stuff. I think it's... I think it... It doesn't need to be as polarizing though yeah. as it can be. I, th- I think maybe even having it be class based. Like, like I really like the sort of, um, the arc you have with the darkest dungeon character where you care about them, but they gain terrible traits and yeah. good traits at about the same rate. And so you go on a journey with each of them where they go through their amazing period and then they get past <laughs> their prime and you kind of retire them and you only bring them out. Like that would be an amazing trajectory for an XCOM soldier if it's like, they get like rather than just getting better forever they get good you send them on more missions they see some shit and then you only take them out when you need that specific skill because there's a downside to whatever kind of injury they've incurred or trauma that's been inflicted on them like i guess that's the thing i want xcom to do is is have like be more of a sine wave less like less of a just a, a you know an escalation curve where as soon as you've got as tom says as soon as you get snowboarding there's no reason to stop snowboarding. And it's really hard to stop snowboarding, actually. Yeah. Unless you, you fuck it up really badly. Yeah. I'm trying to think of a strategy game that's done that sort of thing. I well, can't. so there's a, the Long War mod for XCOM 2, um, has some kind of system. I haven't played it, but I've heard there's a system where, uh, it takes a while to sort of infiltrate people. And so there's like mission opportunities and you can send some people but it takes time for them to like be infiltrated. And so the more people you want on that mission, the longer you have to sort of invest. Yeah, I played it a little bit. I think it's like, yeah, so you kind of commit your people and they're just... Yeah, it takes some amount of time of waiting on the world map for them to be ready, basically. Yeah, so if there's other opportunities in the meantime, you can't use those guys for that. And that means you're having to mix more more characters. And if you you want to get there faster, you send fewer people. So if you think you can do the mission with two people and you don't want to miss other opportunities, or you have three opportunities at once and they're all time-limited then getting ready for all of them at once might be a case of making decisions about how many people you really need, which is a nice idea, but it's daunting. Like it is, you know, an, a level of confidence above where you normally are with XCOM, which is like send everybody where the first upgrade you get is bigger squads so you can send more people. Mm-hmm. Like, cause it's, that seems like such a huge power spike. I really love what they've done with Long War. Um, just so that, I mean, the game itself is so rich and so, um, for that potential, those potential changes, but yeah, be interesting to see what they announce. Um, I, it could be squids. I reckon squids. 
My money's on squids. Yep. <laughs> Don't disagree. <laughs> um, speaking of aliens. Oh boy. This is a good one. It almost was. Um, <laughs> I don't know where we're going yet. <laughs> we're going to space, Tom. We're in space. Okay. So there was a, <laughs> oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> um, we're going to take a magical journey to Andromeda. Oh, that's a name. That's a name I haven't heard for a long time. <laughs> Alex uh, is throwing away a cigar as he says that. <laughs> that's a name I've not heard since I was a boy in February or whatever, <laughs> March. Um, so there was, uh, I think, was it Kotaku did a big, a big piece? Big Kotaku. Big Kotaku did a big piece on, <laughs> um, on, sorry, I mean, so big, <laughs> on the trials. Was it on, on, on Andromeda? <laughs> on what? <laughs> no, 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 no. Andromedon. Andromedon. Um, yes, um, on the, the making of Mass Effect Titus Andromedon. um which i guess like so i haven't read this article i need to preface this and we were talking about it beforehand and i guessed all of the things that are in this article that went wrong with the making of the game but it's uh by all accounts interesting look at why andromeda ended up being released as it was i say that with some skepticism because i actually really like andromeda and it's aged very well in my brain yeah you've read it right alex i have yeah I have not. Um, <laughs> oh no! So oh boy! I, no, I, I read a bit of it, um, but I was the thing. I uh, I got most of of, um, of the gist of it, but uh, does it ever explain why the circumstances were so constrained? Why there was such a tight budget, and so it had to be done with a, you know a suboptimal mm, number that's of a people? Good question. I don't. It seems like a, a franchise that makes a lot of money. Like, yeah, I don't know because it was a satellite studio. But they were well funded. I mean, it was meant to be a huge project. Although, I don't think that it does explain why it was so constrained. Because the, one of the big uh, points of it is that the animation team was severely constrained, um, uh, amongst many other problems. But um, they didn't have enough stuff for the amount of work they did, and it was a, a shitload of work because yeah, um, yeah. it has more dialogue than any other Mass Effect game um, by a large factor. Um, and more characters, and that is a lot of work. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and they so, tried going procedural at first. Yeah, so uh, I believe that the originally um, the whole project started five years before it came out, so it was a long period. Well, they started right when Mass Effect Three ended, right? Yeah, because that was twenty twelve. And then uh, they had high, high ambitions for the project that it was, you know, um, going to be huge and uh the part i did read did read so um said that they were excited about the idea of combining like procedural um you know endless worlds with bioware storytelling yeah and just right off the bat you're like how (laughs) how would that ever work so i think a lot of that time in that five years so uh for three years essentially they tried to hash out the technology that would make procedural universe and then figure out how to put a game and a story inside that. Mm. And um turned out that was years, quite difficult. I started to feel like that whole idea is a trap. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I would have um, thought making infinite planets was ambitious. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, they, and so, so I think in the last 18 months or two years, they, they used some of the technology they developed to 
rescale the whole thing and go manual so they generated a load of planets or some a small number of planets um and then manually put the you know the environments in them mm. and uh manually put the stories in but it's you know it's, you know that would be the game you know they they were solving all the important problems you know how do you make a big universe and a coherent story that is fucking cool mm. that is a cool question i can see so i think one of the interesting things about it is that um the the staff found the the first part of the production pre-production absolutely amazing like at the, the best point of their entire careers and then actual production where everything kind of fell apart and they had mm. to really rush the worst part of their careers and um it's kind of sad, really, you know, to see ambitions crush like that. What was um, the Dragon Age Inquisition team? Was that uh, was that just like the Dragon Age Two team, or was I it? Think it was, well, that was out. That was being done out of Edmonton, so Bioware's kind of central studio. I, I think they I gained some people from like, Mass Effect Three team when that ended, and then. Right. Uh, but it's the central. I know it's the central like creative team that are all all the Dragon Age games, and then a tech team from the Mass Effect team and dice i think because yeah, that was that, right when that was frostbite and that was their first like frostbite engine. game yeah because that was frostbite engine which is one of the difficulties cited with with mass effect andromeda and that game just seemed to be incredibly accomplished like it just seemed to yeah be great <laughs> and yeah, well made and fine. um i'm sure it was super difficult my i was just wondering if like maybe uh they faced they it said they faced the same kind of problems you know yeah. but kind of at the same time if you sort of mean it seems like making a game of the scale is just uh, phenomenally hard always but the reason that bio have done it so well so many times successfully is that they have a team who've done it a whole lot of times and so it's a well-oiled machine uh for the most part but obviously if you switch teams and studios on that it falls apart yeah i think they had focus before in a way that they didn't have you know because like you know mass effect one was you know they must have had problems making that game but yeah, it was still very con- it was it's a janky game as well yeah and then Mass Effect 2, they could yeah. pick on all the good stuff in the first one and just refine Mass Effect 3, same again. And then mm. and then they wanted to tear it all up and start, you know, really pushing. Yeah, I, I think I mean, I've still probably said everything I'm going to say about Andromeda, but like I meant what I said earlier, like it has aged really well in my brain. Like I spoke to Tom Hatfield, um friend about it over the weekend because he's the only person I know who's finished it and both just had fun memories of it has a great ending it has you know it has loads of hits loads of, i think now that you know knowing or hearing that it's it was put together in a rush after its initial design failed i think they did a really good job under those constraints and it's a shame that given that it has so many of the same problems as the first mass effect game that it doesn't look like they're going to get a chance to mass effect to it you yeah. know to learn to take the same technology learn how to use it better to take the same ideas and take away what didn't work and, and polish up the things that did, you know, like feels like there's a sort of process of invention or, and development there. That's just been sort of brutally axed, obviously partly by EA presumably, but also by a sort of a public for the game that has just sort of totally rejected it without, I don't know, any kind of, without nuance, I suppose like the, the backlash was so absolute and so sort of immediate and, by all means, they, they do bear some responsibility for having bad facial animations and things in the game at launch, but it definitely felt like they weren't expecting a 
you know, an absolute rejection on that, on that level. Yeah. And ironically, the only other game I can think of that's hit exactly the same thing recently is No Man's Sky, which had exactly the same, you know what I mean? It's the same sort of like, don't try and do infinite planets yeah. because people will instantly hate you and never <laughs> let go of that opinion. Like it's, it's sort of, it's a strange they did, um, phenomena. They just patched it, didn't they? Uh, to make, partly to make, uh, oh, yeah. Jarl bisexual, the, no, the really. Angaran, yeah. um, guy. Cause they said that, um, there are no, squad mate same-sex romances for the male rider and so now there is yeah because there's a crewmate same-sex romance mm. but not a squad mate same-sex romance and that distinction makes a difference i think well, yeah when i read it the patch i was like why is that a big deal and then i remembered oh yeah like um in mass effect 3 there's no um uh uh, wrong Steve, no, you're remembering it right. Actually, no, can you? I was, thinking, I was going to say, sorry, no, I was, uh, as a female shepherd, um, there's the, is it her name Kelly, the, the lady on the Normandy who you couldn't romance? Um, um, I, so there's Kelly on the Normandy 2, and there's Sam Trainer in Normandy 3. Oh, yeah, Normandy. I think I've, I think maybe thinking of Sam. Anyway, there wasn't like a, a squad mate, and uh, I realized like squad mates are the ones you go on the missions with and spend all of your time with. And so, if <laughs> your romance option is not one of those people, mm. you're going to meet them like three times <laughs> and say yeah. hi. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, and it's obviously they're being responsive. But... I mean, that's, that's addressing those, those sort, that sort of patches, addressing the engaged players, which is kind of what they all they can really do now, you know. Guess whether a bunch of people are angry about it. <laughs> Mm. they are uh. <laughs> i find the whole thing just kind of fascinating and sad at the same time because it's sort of it's kind of mad how ambitious those games are in terms of what they try and do in terms of play and storytelling and technology and all the rest of it those things and it's sort of mad vaunting ambition and the lesson apparently is like don't have those yeah don't like, have big ideas like <laughs> <laughs> do a small thing well Honestly, yeah, like my, my, uh, growth as a developer has been more or less in those lines. <laughs> like, be much less ambitious. Make something a lot like something that already exists. Just take something that already exists, like do 90% that, and then like the 10% can be different. <laughs> yeah. And that's a, you know, maybe a slightly depressing thought. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I'd still, I mean, I, I think Andromeda is going to be one of those games like, uh, like Night Still Republic 2. Um, where you, for the people who liked it when it came out, the similar games again in some ways, a bit janky when they came out, subsequently fixed. Um, but with like loads of heart and interesting ideas and cool characters and cool arcs and story moments and stuff. And that stuff will kind of remain buried treasure for as long as people are put off by that backlash. And at some point, someone's going to pick up Andromeda not knowing the history for a tenor and a origin sale and I go, think it's great. Oh, it's yeah. right, this. Yeah, 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 exactly. Like, and that's a sort of a sad fate for a series that was kind of so prominent. But what are you going to do? What, what are you going to do? do? Not have not have tired faces in your game. Just don't do it. It's not worth it. <laughs> not worth. Not worth the universal backlash. <laughs> it's that thing though of always wanting better. Mm. It was interesting that kind of I think that you know you the old Unreal Engine 1 and, you know, you know they, they looked good, you know, and then suddenly you see this brand new one in the fainted, you know, fate, fated, fated sort of uh, frostbite, which looks so good in Battlefield or whatever. Yeah. And everything looks not as good. And you kind of think, but one of the, one of the points in the feature is that, um, uh, that the, um, 
as they were fixing problems towards the end of development, they would, you know, fixing one thing would break other things. Mm -hmm. And so the game would just look progressively worse, even as they were kind of fixing things and which was entirely depressing you know inside and you know there was a comparison shot in there which i i didn't see the first time around when it was being sort of going around the internet but there's a shot uh, that was leaked from 2015 or something where everything is you know, of the same scene which everything's lit really nicely and then you know zoom hmm. forward to the release game and it looks really flat and horrible and it's like that must be so painful as hmm. just to know that that's happened and to know that what are you going to do? And I think also the kind of increased ambition is kind of a curse because like if you go and look at like except maybe in the sort of the big showcase moments in Mass Effect 3 if you go and look at like the blocking and cinematography of scenes in the original trilogy versus Andromeda Andromeda is more often much more ambitious. Dragon Age got there as well like from the course of its games into Frostbite. Um, but when you have more ambitious staging and characters occupying more interesting positions not just standing in a triangle talking to each other like characters leaning on stuff and sitting in chairs and standing yeah. up and looking into each other's eyes and all the kind of extra level of sophistication. As soon as you get there, you need the animation resource to go with it. Yeah, so and if they're just looking straight at you, it doesn't that, have to work so hard. Like that clip that we did the rounds of the internet right in the game came out of Cora walking away from like an early conversation where she just sort of walks like a sassy <laughs> robot for no reason. That's clearly because no one had the time to kind of fix her walk cycle for that. But like... The whole sort of someone showing up in a conversation, saying their bit, and then leaving to do something else is like a level of sophistication that, like, you know, in in Mass Effect One, that would have been the awkward, like, you know, full on Jerry Anderson shoulder turn, bounce out of shot kind of thing, <laughs> and no one would have batted an because you saw less. You yeah, know what I mean? Because the camera was brutally kind of yeah zoomed in. Zoomed in you yeah. know, like, um, it's funny what you do and don't forgive, like, because they show more and have the potential to do more. But the, the exponent, like exponential amounts yeah. of technical and kind of and creative uh, like, requirements, there's kind a, of zooms up. Yeah, there's a moment sort of middle late part of that game, which is actually very similar to a moment in Dragon Age Inquisition from an animation point of view, where it's the one of the end of like the Kadara arc in Andromeda has uh, Ryder <clears throat> sitting on like a high up container, kind of watching the sunset over a settlement, passing a bottle with another character who's sat next to them, which is way more sophisticated in terms of what two characters are doing in a scene than most things in bio games of a previous generation um and it looks you know fine in andromeda it looks it looks good apart from the fact that like sort of trying to guess where Ryder's mouth is going to be for like lifting the bottle is is a bit of a a a, uh, a minefield and it's a problem that i don't remember them having with a very similar scene two characters sat on a rooftop in Dragon Age Inquisition. And it just goes, you go that extra mile, you get it right, and people aren't going to point out that like, ah, Ryder just put this bottle up her nose. <laughs> like, it's that, I don't know, it's like the extra detail level that you need to go to as soon as you've got the technology to support more ambitious things. I don't know. But I still appreciate Shepherd, the ambition. Shepard was bad at drinking in Mass Effect 1. Mm. I have a screenshot. I think it was even in my review where uh, the glass is just completely over her nose. <laughs> <laughs> not touching her lips. But yeah, interesting to kind of have that stuff come out, even though none of it is really a huge surprise. Yeah, none of it's really a surprise. There's some really nice details in it, though. Go read it. I should do. Big Kotaku. The the link will be in the show notes for this very episode. Moving on, we should talk about what we've been playing. Hmm. Alex? Oh, me first. I I just thought I'd jump this on you. I've been playing Worlds Adrift. I managed to knock in on the um, closed beta. Grappling hook blimp thing. Yeah, gra- grappling hook blimp thing. So this is a uh, an MMO made by Bossa um, Studios, who are behind 
Surgeon Simulator. Surgeon Simulator hmm. and I Am Bread. So, uh, if, so those are both physics games and this is a physics based MMO, which, um, uh, is kind of interesting because you can't, you don't normally see physics in an MMO. No. Mm. That's really hard to do in an MMO. Um, so like, um, it's basically you are in a sky full of floating islands and each of these floating islands has been, or I think 95% of these floating islands in the current kind of playable area, which is quite large, um, have been designed by players. So, um, I think they released few months ago a kind of a player creation sculpting kit on steam mm. so people have been making islands um wild and alpha has also been going on um and um and they're not kind of crazy or none of the ones i've come across have been very crazy they're all kind of quite naturalistic i think they've been curated you know mm. as a result to fit that um your object is it's a very craft game you're crafting um stuff so there are trees and there are rocks on the on these floating islands and you uh have a kind of a, a, a breaky thing <laughs> power beamy like thing which breaks the stuff down trees are nice like when they fall down they kind of fall in pieces and kind of branches fall off and that kind of thing which is nice and they kind of gather up and then with these uh, uh materials you can then build a skyship which is basically mm. um a physically you know, a physics enabled object that floats in the sky um, and you can put sails on it and that will enable it to go. And you put a, a steering wheel, I think that's the technical term, steering wheel, <laughs> uh, on it and um, steer it around. Uh, you can later on, you can sort of, once you find the requisite kind of plans and that kind of thing and materials, you can start putting engines on them and get more and more powerful. Everything has a weight. So therefore, uh, um, your you know the 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 way that the, how much it weighs will affect its kind of the way that it handles. Um, my one, which is merely a very small hull, and kind of just a a, a, a sail and um, steering wheel, um, already handles like guff. <laughs> but you can kind of put wings and things on them and really kind of you know, um, and you can make them really large because event uh, you can actually recruit a crew. Um, who will be able to uh, take care of the guns? Can you accrue a crew? Thing you can. Huh? Can you accrue a crew? You accrue a crew, a crew of other players. So you know, so you're kind of working together. Um, uh, it's really open. There aren't any quests or anything. Uh, it's all very emergent and open. So um, if you want to go out and be a buccaneer and steal stuff off people, you can do that, or you can maybe form a fleet and sort of do it. It's very. It's evidently looking towards Eve. Mm. um but with you know actually yeah quite closely to eve um elite and that kind of thing mm. but in this kind of weird sort of very ico shadow of the colossusy kind of world so everything's very yeah. lit um in order to find you know and there's a reason to explore as well because as you explore you can kind of research kind of trees and at creatures and um uh ruins and things um which will then accrue you uh, uh, knowledge points that you can then in, uh, invest in expanding your your knowledge tree and therefore kind of the things that you can build. It's cool. It's it's and it's pretty amazing just how much physics is going on. Mm. You have a grappling hook. That's kind of one of the first ways that you get to go, have going around. So you're kind of swinging around. It's really hard. <laughs> Find it really hard. Just fall down all the time. But um, yeah, it's 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 interesting. And quite hard to get into because it's 
I haven't really played anything quite like it. Hmm. Do you can you like swing onto passing ships with your yes. hook? Have you done that? Nope. <laughs> I haven't got the skills. Is I it literally what? I would see a ship going over and I think I will miss and I will fall down to my death. Because <laughs> you will, you know, if you fall off the island, you will fall. If you uh, fall on right. a, on a on a surface, your character will stumble. You know, like it's very your your movement is quite um, GTA like. So mm. you kind of you stumble <laughs> and you roll and that kind of thing. And you know, it's not until you kind of fall, you know you know if you stumble off a island, you will die and you'll lose everything that you've got on you. Is it all like one big continuous space? Yep. Everyone's in the same. Everyone, ev- all players are in the same place. Well, uh, <laughs> they impossible. have they have regional servers, um, but um, so that and that's only for lag. It's not for anything else. So it's built on a new networking tech, which is called Spatial OS, which um, it's made by a company called Improbable, who have just been funded mm. to the half a billion dollars um, <laughs> because they're kind of making. MMO software, MMO kind of networking systems, which are all about big worlds, massive physics-enabled, huge-scale, permanent, uh, pervasive worlds sort of thing. So another point of this is that if you crash your ship and you and as you go through, you'll continually see um, what players have left behind them. So if you chop down a tree on, or if you chop down all the trees on an island... Uh, and other player coming to it will not be able to get anything until they regrow, which will take a few days. Huh, which cool. is, you know, so you can kind of occupy land effectively through that kind of thing. Um, it's, it's, um, yeah, uh, and yeah, if you crash your ship, you know, you're, the, the hull will remain there until you either drag it out or let it kind of rust down, you know, over a week or so slowly. <laughs> so they told me, so I, I was writing about it and, um, the designer was telling me how during the alpha there was a sandstorm. So they, um, there are weathers, weather kind of patterns that happen, mm. you know, with areas, certain areas being more prevalent than others. And, uh, a player had a very, you know, a sky ship that he was very proud of and he got lost in a sandstorm. So he recruited a load of other players to help him go into <laughs> the sandstorm and then drag it out. And dragging out is literally attaching ropes to it. Oh, wow. And they, you know, and getting very, very kind of strong ships to kind of drag this, his ship out as when and then back to a place where they could fix it up. And then he flew it for the rest of the Stuck theater. in sand? Uh, it was, well, it, I think it was literally in a storm and they couldn't, he couldn't for some reason get, uh, okay. I think then he presumably died in the storm, you know, respawned outside it and, but then didn't have, you know, he couldn't, you know, rebuild a strong enough ship to go back in mm. so mm. it's kind of cool what they want is like nice little sort of emergent stories like that to come from game systems you know from physics and from kind of coherent sort of um you know stuff it is yeah but what comes of putting a great big world and lots of players into it and seeing what happens mm. that sounds cool it is you know in a, in effect it I mean, I found it a lot of kind of running around and kind of not knowing what I was doing, but I started to come together as, as you know, I've been playing and um, it's one of those games that's lots of promise. Like it, it's much more immediate than something like um, Eve, much more kind of, you know, you can have fun just wandering around and sort of just chopping down trees, you know, mm. in a way that in Eve, that level of play isn't, you know, isn't yeah, really yeah. in screens. It's cool. Cool. That actually does sound really good. I knew of it, but I think I was getting confused like Guns of Icarus and other games about yeah. airships and multiplayer. Yeah. I didn't realize it was that sort of explory, creaty. 
Yeah. I mean, you know, whether I wouldn't know yet whether, you know, a, a game like Guns of Icarus is like tuned for being fun to, to crew a ship. Mm. I don't know whether the fact that everything is physically enabled and therefore, you know, your position of your turret might feel a bit weird and it's all a bit janky. And when, you know, the cannonballs start flying, whether you'll have as much fun as you're kind of being shaken off the ship and that sort of thing. But then you can also have that sense of sort of, you know why it's not fun. And the reason why Mm. it's not fun is part of its appeal, you know. I don't know. Does sound cool, though. It's cool. Hmm. What's the status? Is it? It's in closed beta and they're kind of it's on steam's early access and then but they're releasing i think they did a release of keys you know release of you know you know you could buy your way onto it uh, to a in a limited number last week and presumably they'll kind of slowly expand the 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 population like technically it was pretty good like there was a little bit of kind of sort of laggy weirdness going on um like it's running on improbable servers so um, so they're not know, very likely to work <laughs> but they you know oh the other I mean, one of the interesting things about it is that um so one of the things with spatial os which is this networking system is that um its thing is that it's made of lots of tiny little servers effectively swarm servers swarms mm. of these servers so when when things get busy on an island it just seamlessly assigns more processing hmm. like more you know, so huh. you don't affect. They said that that you can have a mass encounter of hundreds of ships, and the system will absolutely take that. What they find is that people's computers can't take drawing it all. So <laughs> mm. actually, you know, so you won't get the kind of the old MMO thing of kind of everything slowing down. When... Yeah, or the the Eve thing of we have to slow down time yeah. so that <laughs> yeah. this can be handled. Yeah, that does sound really cool. That's that's interesting. That that's what they're doing next as well because it's also. It's not the logical next step after Surgeon Simulator and mm. I Am Bread. It's kind of, yeah, kind of ambitious. Worlds Adrift. I'm going to say the name of the game Oh, yeah, we again. should have said Worlds, Worlds Adrift. Worlds so Adrift. So I, um, I complained on this podcast that Video Games Hot Dog uh, sort of didn't mention the name of their assignment game at all uh, in a couple of episodes. And uh, they've taken this criticism seriously to heart because um, uh, they've heard it from other people as well. And... Uh, Zach's response to this was not to mention the game more, but to tell their listeners to send in recordings of them mentioning the name of the game they're going to discuss next week, and then play those recordings throughout the discussion, <laughs> incongruously at varying volumes <laughs> and at varying levels of quality. <laughs> like, and there's like 25 of them or something. <laughs> there's nothing like and an so... invited response to criticism, is there? <laughs> <laughs> I feel I've really fucked up here and made the world worse. <laughs> I was going to say, because you said adrift, I realized that the word adrift has been spoiled for me by the game adrift, oh, which had the audacity yeah. adronft, as it's also known. <laughs> um, like, so <laughs> I didn't realize that I, when you said it, I heard worlds adronft. <laughs> You've been poorly programmed. I, I like to imagine that Arcane, when they're making the space sections of Prey, had oxygen capsules that you have to find to restock and then a drift came out and every single person complained about that mechanic <laughs> and they're like let's hastily take those out <laughs> so that's actually, like, people have like i think in the, there's legacy stuff that they've people discovered yeah i mean you find oxygen canisters yeah but you don't need them yeah and i wonder if that they just flicked a switch there was, says, there let's was just not need them survival system going on huh yeah cool yeah right core i think it's hmm. i definitely think it's better without oxygen limits
Yeah, totally. Did you know that the um, eels, you know, the the, the, mm. the eels in um, Prey, uh, they were inspired by... Uh, um, eels? <laughs> Ricardo Bear, who was the kind of the lead designer on it, um, was having a, a, a sewage system um, installed in his house because he lives out in the sticks in, in Texas and not, not on the kind of the main sewage. So he has to have um, his own... Uh, was oh, it yeah, septic, tank. septic tank and he learned all about the kind of the balance of kind of bacteria that you have to have in these things and seepage and stuff like that and um and he applied that and thought oh that'll be good for the game so he has a system where um so wait eels... he has eels in his septic tank i would i would i'm disappointed <laughs> i would be disappointed if he does doesn't wow because they uh... i should do a dishonored reference yeah, because they, yeah. they have yeah. this recurring thing of like um, uh, sea-based life gives you mana. <laughs> like yeah. in in prey, if you eat anything with fish in it, then you get uh, psi points for it. And in System Shock, it was coffee. Um, and I think something else. I can't remember what else. But they're they're sort of. I always find it fascinating in immersive sims to just eat and drink everything and see what they think the stat benefits what of these things do. are. Because cigarettes is always minus one health point, right? You, t- yeah. you smoke a cigarette and you just lose a health point. That's it. Um, Which is uh, not what a cigarette. I mean, yeah, it's just, like <laughs> no food works this way. It's, yeah, it's such a strange blind spot for like all immersive sims, which try and be realistic in almost all things except what food and does. Like, oh, yeah, with the cigarettes, it should be no real effects when you do it, but then suddenly, catastrophically, you'll die. Yeah. <laughs> like, you just get lung cancer three hours later. You drink, you drink an entire bottle of whiskey, including the glass, from a shelf in a second. <laughs> you are wobbly for 10 seconds, during which case you can't tell left from right, and then you're fine. But so in System Shock, alcohol would, I think, maybe restore a little health, but drain your sigh. Oh, really? Okay, right. Their sort of claim... They sort of see Psy as like a mental energy, I think. And so coffee, because it makes you more alert, you get more Psy and alcohol would drain your Psy. I can't remember. Does it do that in Prey? It cures it terror. Hmm. doesn't drain your Psy. Yeah. There. So you get... You just get pissed off. Hey! <laughs> think I'm scared I of you. scared. That's, that's true to life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Extremely leery. Yeah. Shouting at the technopath. <laughs> I mean, when I came to this podcast, I was full of terror, and <laughs> Indeed, yeah. slowly it's ebbing away. That's why we do this every week, just to ward off the technopaths. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and by terror, I mean a black border around my screen that makes it slightly harder to see things. Yeah, terror, you know. Uh, your controls go wonky and you get loads of screen tear. Um, what screen... have you been playing? Um, I've been playing a bit of Dead Cells, which I know you've also yeah, yeah, played. Yeah. Um, I've actually been playing shitloads of Cave Blazers, which I talked about last week. And so I'll just say that continues to be good. And, um, uh, I keep finding interesting items in that that change my play style. Um, and then Dead Cells. So I, I discovered Cave Blazers and Graham, uh, discovered Dead Cells around the same time. We both yelled at each other to play the other one, <laughs> uh, and did not play the, um, uh, I didn't play Dead Cells for a while and he didn't play Cave Blazers for a while. Now I'm playing Dead Cells and he's playing Cave Blazers <laughs> and all is well with the world. Um, yeah, it's a, they are very similar in structure. They're both roguelikes where you start um, the... Actually, you might have to correct me on this. It, how random is it? It feels like it's randomly generated. The uh, yeah, then the, the butt to very strict. Um, I think it's spelunky style kind of mm. there are specific kind of tile sets or like you know room sets which yeah. is stitching together and 
the difference is where cave blazers are very much like Splunky and um, you're a tiny little dude jumping around caves and dodging bats and stuff. This is, um, you're fighting zombies and it's got much more of a combat system. It's very much about, um, I guess, Dark Souls inspired, um, where there's a roll that makes you, I assume, invincible for that duration yeah. of it. And then, yeah. uh, but you can only use it every so often. And uh, the first choice in the game is, do you take the shield or do you take the bow? You've got a sword already, but do you... you which secondary weapon do you want and you think okay bow and then you walk 10 feet and you come back and say okay i want the shield <laughs> see i did that i did the exact opposite i thought yeah, <laughs> really? shield and then like oh this is really hard <laughs> i realized the bow is actually yeah it's really combo-y really com uh, so i realized that combat is all about you know two sword slashes and then a bow shot and because they're stunned from the swords you know you, you can put them into a oh, lock yeah. stun and then you can then you've got time to to ratchet up a, you know a, a shot so what perspective is this controlled from is it okay. asymmetric is it this is on. this is side, side on. on it's very castlevania-y meet oh, okay. metroid metroidvania-y um yeah and yeah. that scale as well your character is kind of i don't know a couple of inches tall depending mm. on the bigger, size of your bigger screen. than a spelunky man yeah, yeah. Many Smaller than a big people. Mario. <laughs> I, th- I think I'd say he's a double double Mario. Two Marios. Yes. We've got two Marios. <laughs> ladies Mario. and, <laughs> um, and you find random stuff, but I don't. I'm not. I haven't played enough to really get a handle on what that is because I found like a thing that says it makes your skills better, and I'm like, I don't have any skills. <laughs> and then oh, yeah. I. Oh no! Yeah. Okay. Because uh, late, I think I've now got to the point where I have had something in my, one of my skill slots, but then I died, and it was yeah. a flashbang. Yep. Um, but at the time, I got a boost to my skills; it didn't have any skills. Um, and then I've also found, uh, I feel like I haven't really found items that often, but I found blueprints for items. And then when you go to some special guy, you can turn in your blueprints for items. No. Well, okay. So the first time, uh. No, 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 no. <laughs> I found a blueprint and then it said, I would take this to the collector or whatever yeah. in order to unlock this. And I did. And I unlocked it and he also gave me one. It was like a blood sword or something. And oh, the blood sword just one, popped out of him. Oh, and so right. I took the blood sword and then oh. I carried on and I had a good time. That might be the first time. And then I, I yeah, that, cause then next time when I was next there, I spent, oh yeah, so you need, I think the way it works is you need a blueprint to like unlock the, the blueprint and then you need to spend cell dead cells right to actually get it um or to upgrade it maybe yeah it's up for upgrades so as you're running around you will there are various places where you'll find items then chests and that sort of thing i don't think they're locked i don't think they i think that you can i think you have access to all of them potentially have access to all of them from the start of the game as long as you kind of get far enough um you know they just they are you have the potential to get them. And then when you find a blueprint, oh man, this is interesting. Oh, so is a blueprint like so you blueprint, skip spending the cells? So I think the blueprint allows you, so, so okay, so the the world is divided into zones, um, sort of quite sort of Metroid-y or... or it feels like a start of a philosophical treatise, yeah. like <laughs> David no. Hume wrote. The world is divided into zones. <laughs> a man is a miserable pile of secrets. <laughs> <laughs> when you when you come to the end of a zone, there are the kind of exit points and mm. as you go from one zone to another. So you're in the kind of one world and then you go to the, the old sewers or whatever it is. And then in that, in between the two, you'll meet a character who will allow you to upgrade 
um, items using cells and you get cells for killing enemies. They will kind of, and you'll collect them. When you die, you will lose all the cells you've accrued to that point. But you can spend them between levels, between zones, um, uh, to upgrade items that you may or may not find on any given playthrough. So your blood sword, and then you're sort of, I think that once you get a, a blueprint, you can then start investing cells in them, in that thing, and it gets more and more powerful And when you find it. And um, and then you're also picking up money. Um, when you die, initially, I think you lose all your money, and then you, but you can also invest your cells in losing less of your money. And the um, upgrades that you invest cells in, those persist over multiple lives? Yep. Yep. Yeah, so that's the, that's the kind of the persistent development the side of the game. I see. I found like a door where I had to pay yeah. 1,500 to open it and I tried attacking it and it took damage and I'm like, ah. And so I kept attacking it and it took a while, but I broke down the door and then I said, you have angered the gods. And uh, uh, the next, hmm, what was the counter on it? It was like the next 10 enemies or the next 10 something uh, for that duration um any hit you take will kill you yeah. and if you oh yeah until you kill 10 enemies any hit you take will kill you hmm. um and if you can kill 10 without taking a hit then you get it. Uh, you'll be fine yeah, first enemy i encountered killed well, me <laughs> as well oh you got you on the first one yeah yeah that's the, a cool the idea though tight though like it's, it's very tight but it's yeah, yeah it feels it's interesting for me because i love spelunky you know cave blazers and i don't really like dark souls i've tried a couple of times to get into it and i just i can't get a handle on the combat and this is kind of very dark souls inspired combat in a spelunky uh format um and i kind of like it when it's easy and then the harder it gets the less the more i have to engage with the timing of rolls and blocks and stuff and the less i like that it always i think it's a very timing based system and um i think the the more hardcore you get in that the the less i get out of it but then it might just be that you know maybe if i get better at it i'll enjoy it more I think the one, if you have that run where you have like a flashbang and you have uh, like a freeze grenade and you've got, you know, your blood sword and, you know, you can have just that run where you just feel like you're just walking through the enemies and then it starts piling enemies on you and you get an elite enemy on you and you die. I kept finding a bunch of interesting things to put in. I had like a sword and a shield and that was working well for me. And then I kept finding interesting things that could go in one of those two slots but it's like, I can't give up my sword because I need to deal damage. And if you give up my shield, I always regret it. I'm always like, fucking hell, I could have blocked that. I could have blocked that. I could have blocked that. <laughs> <laughs> what I find is hard to, because you, you you assign those weapons to the the button that you want, like, mm. you know, and which means that if you put the, if you decide you're not going to have a sword or you decide to put the shit, the short sword on a different button, you're going to remap your mental kind of yeah. controls. And I found that really difficult. We had the problem with the heat signature. You can assign anything to left or right mouse that's in your inventory. Um, but when you start a character, we just set some defaults because we don't want the buttons to do nothing. Um, and if on the last character you were playing, you had like a melee weapon in your left and a range weapon in your right, and then our default is range weapon in the left, um, you immediately you're like, what the fuck? The yeah. game's broken. This is bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> what have you got a solution? Is it? To nope. <laughs> I mean, we can. The last setting. One solution is we just don't have assignments because we already have to deal with that case anyway. In case you've thrown away the thing you're using, and what, in that case, when you press a button, it's not assigned to anything. We pause the game and show you the inventory menu, and you can assign something. It's a bit jarring. You don't expect that to happen when you press a button, but it's better than the wrong thing happening, I guess. Mm. 
What's the art style like for Dead Cells? Saying as a guy who knows nothing about it, really. Pixel. Yeah, it's pixel. It's kind of blurry. I find it's sort of everything has a kind Spooky of smudge pixel. to it, uh, where there's not a lot of fine of, detail. Yeah, I think there's quite a lot of kind of um, color washes going over the top, sort of thing. Mm. I, I, I mean, I like it a lot actually. Mm. Although, oh, it does one of my things that I don't like with pixel, where where you've got one scale of pixels, oh, no. you know. Good screen. job, John's not here. And then there's like a sort of they'll have like an information screen with a different scale of pixels. It's, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> Somewhere John Roberts is shivering. <laughs> um I also uh so I've been watching more StarCraft, um the GSL, mm. um and some good stuff has been happening there. Um I was really pleased to see um uh, it's extremely rare for anyone non-Korean to be in the tournament at all. And there have been two non-Korean players this season in the round 32. Um, I won't say how well they've done, but the, the general stereotype that Koreans are really good at StarCraft remains true. <laughs> um, uh, and one of those games um, with... Uh, who was she against? It was Scarlet was the um, Canadian player. Yeah. And I I've heard of Scarlet. can't remember. Sorry? I've heard of Scarlet. I don't know very much about StarCraft, and I've actually heard of Scarlet. Yeah, she's, I think, the only um, female programmer to have made it into the GSL. Um, Oh, that's right. There's a New Yorker feature about her. Right. Anyway, sorry. Uh, She's really good, it turns out. Um, I can't remember who she's fighting, but there is a... She plays without game sound. Because last time she played in the GSL, she found that the noise of the crowds and stuff drowned out the game sound, and it threw her off. And so she's been practicing ever since with no game sound. She doesn't listen to it at all. And to keep with that, in the tournament itself she doesn't even put her headphones in she's <laughs> just guessing and then so i don't know starcraft well enough when it, someone's targeting a nuke on you is there mm. any audio cue for that i don't know if as in that you you hear as well as your opponent so because like there is the nuclear launch detected thing but yeah I, I don't know i don't know because um she uh, falls prey to one of the most decisive nukes in StarCraft history. <laughs> it's um, uh, just, I think the commentators were more blown away by it than I was because I, looking at the big mess of units, I didn't totally register what had died, but it was like all the valuable units in one nuke. Like, And it's StarCraft's brilliant at having these mechanics where um, something dramatic is going to happen. And uh, if you're yeah. the person doing it, or if you're an observer, you can see it gonna ha- about to happen. And if you're not... You either have absolutely no idea or you're checking for it and you're about to stop it. And in which case it will do nothing at all. So like burrowed banelings and widow mines and, um, and nukes. Um, and you can just see like, A, she doesn't see it coming. She doesn't move her units. And then also she uh, just at the last minute moves a bunch of units into it. <laughs> and it's just ah, the absolute worst <laughs> possible time. Um, but they are really good games um, from both sides. And then... Another game with uh, Bion and uh, a Zerg, whose name I can't remember, um, in which he masses Reapers. I'm almost, I am always rooting for the Zerg in any Zerg versus anything game, uh, and particularly in Zerg versus Terran, um, because traditionally Zergs have kind of been the underdog. They kind of get beaten up by Terrans a lot, um, and also I just like the more unconventional race. Um, So usually I'm kind of cheering for the Zerg, but 
Bion is uh, an incredible micro player. He just has control over units that just lets him do things that no one else can do and just defies the logic of, you know, commentators are always saying like, well, clearly he's going to lose this fight because he hasn't got enough. And then he just takes it somehow. Micros it. And yeah. they were getting really excited about the fact that with his first two Reapers, he killed a queen, which I, I don't know the significance of that, but apparently that never happens. Um, and then he just masses Reapers, gets like 12 of them or something and keeps... Uh, denying hatcheries so the Zerg can't get up a new base and build their economy and in the process killing all the, the Zerglings that the Zerg sends after him and you can tell it's going really well he's also throwing grenades which is like a something that wasn't in Starcraft 2 at launch I don't think um, but they can bounce units around and that lets gives Reapers like a much higher ceiling on how good they can be if you micro them perfectly but it's super micro intensive you've got to really be concentrating on where that goes and where it pushes the enemies and where it pushes your own units and all that stuff and uh yeah, it's, it, he does it really, really well, and it's beautiful to watch. And you're kind of, you know, it's amazing to see how well he does with it. And then he, they bring up the units killed tab, and it's two Reapers have died, 68 Zerglings. <laughs> <laughs> it's just been a complete fucking massacre. And that's just the game. It just never goes beyond that because oh. it's just, he's done so much damage with just perfect control. And that was really interesting to watch because usually it's always, um, usually it's always, Usually it's a mix of micro and macro and you'll see games where like micro probably won that like it was, you know, 60-40, but the, the 40 player had the better micro and, and turned it around somehow. But this is just a case where it was just like, this absolutely should not be working, but he's just so fucking good at it. That it just works. Rad, he was the first person to win, I think, GSL. I'm not sure which one might have been one of the other Korean leagues without a team. Oh, right. With no team support beyond huh. last year. That's one of the two big kind of surprise stories out of Korea last year. The other was American winning Korea, which was the, <laughs> the surprising thing that happened last year. But yeah, like kind of nuts. He kind of disproved. I mean, he sort of credited for one of the reasons that I think the Korean Starcraft scene went under, undergo, underwent such a huge overhaul right. last year with the sort of team structures being challenged because he just came along with no, I think he was banned at one point for cheating, came <laughs> back from nowhere and won without a team, which no one has ever done. Wow. They keep referring to uh, the four horsemen of Terran. Mm. There are apparently four Terrans who just kind of dominate, and I don't know who they are because they never list them. But he's one of them, apparently. Yeah, that's the, he's the first one who's come up in the since I've been watching where he's one of the, those four. So mm. I don't know who the others are. Rad. But also, uh, I finished. Well, no, sorry, I didn't finish. I'm very close to finishing. I think the Protoss campaign mm. and single player, and um, uh, really enjoying that still. There was. One, so the last mission I did, I thought was going to be the last mission because it's very much geared like the last mission. The whole thrust of the plot has been kind of bringing together the various factions of Protoss and uniting them, getting them on your side. And I've done that. And then there's this really cool mission, actually. Um, would have been very happy for it to be the last one, uh, where you're, there's some kind of like weird evil shards that are spawning enemies and you're being attacked by enemies on a regular basis. But your primary objective is to take out all these different shards. Each one you take out makes the next ones harder and bolsters the enemy's forces. Uh, so it kind of scales up. And then at the same time, your optional objectives, um, instead of being to gather some resource that gives you some metagame advantage, which is what most of them have been until now, is uh, all of the different factions have like a site that they could enter from and you've got to go and destroy a base there like there's a zerg base and you've got to wipe it out and once you've done that that faction will build a base there and then from then on they will send out waves of their mm. specialty units on a regular basis so like one of them's dark templars who are the invisible ones and so every like two minutes the dark templar base now will send out a bunch of invisible dudes and i can go and join on with my forces and push with them 
Um, and there's, I think there's four different factions you've kind of allied with by that point. And so you can decide for yourself how much do you want to push on the primary objective, how much do you want to build your allies and have them all help you. And because they all have different units and um, different specialities, that's just really cool to see and really like feels like mechanics tying in with the plot, you know, mm. really felt representative of what presumably the plot was, <laughs> was doing. I don't know because I skipped all the cutscenes. Um, it seemed like a great finale to whatever the hell the plot was. <laughs> Are you into the epilogue bit? Uh, so I've just done that mission and I haven't uh, I was expecting the whole game to end and it didn't end uh, so I don't know what's next. Okay. Because that game's long. Okay. <laughs> the mission before that was crazily difficult. It was one of a series of, of ones where you just have a couple of hero units and nothing else. Um which usually I'm not a huge fan of, but these are sort of coming at, I don't know, the climax of a whole bunch of mm. more macro-focused missions, so I was kind of interested. And they are different, like each one of them, because the hero's abilities are different. Whatever the abilities are, you're going to be using them a thousand times in that mission. And so one of them's like, um, one of them's really good at damage, one of them's uh, good at like teleporting, and then uh, there's another mission just about one that can steal enemy units, so you can just like hack uh, robotic units, basically. And then there's one where you are trying to run away from like a miasma that's chasing you and there's all these different like hordes of enemies along the way and you can kind of accumulate units a little bit but um, uh, you're mostly just relying on one hero who has to live and he has a healing power but it's on quite a long cooldown and so there's just a time limit to everything you do and I just got completely uh, destroyed by the time limit the first time. And so the second time, the only way, like I was just not even close to being done with like the third of like 10 groups of enemies uh when i got caught by the, the miasma and so the next time i just did a kind of a speed run type approach where my guy just like ran past everyone he has a teleport ability so i just if he got stuck i just teleport him ahead a little bit and he was constantly losing health and on the brink of death but he could heal himself just fast enough all my supporting units i just left him behind to die um and then got up to the point where they give you dark templars who are the invisible guys and i got to that point before but I, I was there was no chance of doing it because i had no time left and this time I got there with loads of time. And if you have loads of time, you can use Dark Templars to take things out that can't see invisible things. And you just, they don't take any damage. Your guy doesn't take any damage. And it's great. Uh, but that's just a, they clearly want you to do that. Because like they actually have a voice line about like, oh, my Dark Templars will, will handle the Nidus Worms for you. Um, which you have to go and tell them to do. But that only works if you have time to have your guy hang back. If your yeah, guy goes yeah. in with them, then he takes all of the fire and yeah. will die really quickly. Um, and then the, the uh, dark temples are no help so you have to hang him back and if you don't have time then you just can't do that and it seems like everything else has been really easy i've been it sort of i haven't been turning up the difficulty because i like it to be easy but i've been noticing like boy i really don't struggle with any of this <laughs> and then this one was just brutal hmm. yeah i can't actually remember when the campaign that is it's been a while but so the other thing is there's like a big list of units and i've been unlocking variants of each type and there's three variants of all of them i've unlocked everything now hmm. um and I don't have disruptors, and I don't have oracles, who are two units that I know from the multiplayer. So I'm wondering I if don't they don't think just... they're in it. Yeah. yeah. Um, if I remember right, I don't think they are. It's really different. Um, not just in terms of like you can upgrade stalkers in different ways, but um, the uh, carriers, tempests, and motherships are all variants of the same thing in this. So you can only have one of those three things. And in multiplayer, you have all three of those, um, mm. and they, they serve different roles, but you've got to pick which one you want. And Void Rays, which I love, and I was, most of my motivation in this campaign was getting to Void Rays. Um, <laughs> once I got them and unlocked various variants of them, usually a Void Ray is an air unit that charges up as it's attacking. Um, 
and then and its beam gets more and more powerful the more it charges one of the variants you unlock the beam instead of getting more powerful it spreads to more enemies so it's like yeah, a chain lightning that thing that's really cool and then after that i unlocked one like both of those are pretty good so i was like um didn't really think the third variant would be anything i'd use third variant is a completely different ship that just cloaks everything around it um and doesn't cloak itself but cloaks everything else and that's not super great in itself but once you unlock carriers carriers are you know a bit like a void ray where it can attack air and ground and it's really really powerful and if you mass it It you'll just have a great thing and then yeah if you also have a cloak ship with it that cloaks them all uh carriers also repair each other and i've got a global passive ability that repairs the three most damaged things that are uh, mechanical which they are um and they're protoss so they have shields which will generate (laughs) and they're invisible because of this thing and they're flying so a whole like half the zerg units can't target them anyway <laughs> and so i've just for that last mission i just had this amazing like floating invisible death cloud where all i built was carriers basically i had 200 supply of carriers and, and these invisible things and 70 percent of the enemy units couldn't target them because they're invisible or flying <laughs> and it was just glorious rad awesome i'm glad you're getting so much out of that game because it's really good mm. they did a really good job of building two really good games and bolting them together basically yeah, yeah there's uh it still has a really good balance of um like base building and getting to do your own thing versus making each mission different like mm. there's the differences are just about the level i want them to be where it, yes that my challenge is different here but i still get to build a base i still get to decide mm. what i want to make awesome what have you been playing chris so rel- uh, i've been playing two things um but the one that's very relevant to the discussion we just had is i've been playing loads of dawn of war 3 oh, right. um uh we lost a bit of chat on the the pod that had some memory related audio loss issues about my experience with it but uh it just had a really big patch i basically just played multiplayer i played like half the campaign and just stopped um to play multiplayer alone um and it just had a really big patch like its first big balance patch and i remember when i spoke about it the first time on the pod and i was starting out multiplayer i had that nice feeling that kind of honeymoon period feeling and i think i acknowledged it as such at the time of this feels very loose and sort of improvisational and there isn't like necessarily a right way to play and all those things are incorrect. <laughs> uh, there is a, a very correct way to play Dawn of War um, and it does have a, a quite a rigid meta in some ways. Um, I think they're struggling a little bit to find the sort of balance sweet spot for multiplayer uh, to the extent that the patch they released doesn't affect the campaign. All of the changes they've made to the same units and, and the differences aren't as pronounced as they are in um, in Starcraft for example, between what you're doing in the campaign and what you're doing in multiplayer. Um, they're sort of, sort of uh, Eldar, I think, were hugely ascendant when the game came out. Now Space Marines are ascendant. Um, i finding it, I've, I've got, a, sort of, I can't stop playing it, which is a good sign. <laughs> but I feel like I'm sort of falling out of love with it because I'm getting out of the period of fun experimentation, enjoying the spectacle. Because I do think it's a spectacular looking game. Like when it kicks into gear, it really does look great. And it kind of has a sense of scale that I think most games don't have because it has the the relic thing of you're building squads, not individual soldiers. So you're you're always dealing in multiple big groups of people. So the, the size of the battles feels a lot larger. But at the same time, it also has a, you know, unlike you know, more like Dawn of War or less like Company of Heroes. It has the a fiction that enables it to be sort of big spectacular sci-fi units going at it rather than like men in khaki hiding behind a burnt out car, right? Like mm. um, it really does have a cool sense of, of spectacle. And that comes across in multiplayer, particularly because it's most, you know, commonly played 2v2 or 3v3 where you start to get those huge clashes. Um, and I think 
the reasons that I'm starting to get a little bit colder on it are some of them are the game's fault and some of them aren't. One of them is that I don't know how big the player base is, even as soon after launch. It doesn't feel huge. I mean, you can get a game relatively quickly, but the matchmaking feels like it's sort of all over the place as a consequence. Like, um, so actually, I don't know fully what to credit this to. Sometimes it just feels like a stomp one way or the other. Like, it's just, it's very one-sided. Other times it can feel really nice and close, but, uh, games can turn quite quickly and, and that can be unsatisfying. What's really interesting about it is, um, so I think as I played more of it, and I think partly this is just me getting better at it and getting to the stage now, as I've spoken about on the podcast before, I think, where I'm out of the matchmaking doesn't know what to do with me phase and into the, if I wanted to keep getting good at this, I now have to really seriously learn. <laughs> like I've had to do the thing of like looking at the forums now to learn openings. Yeah. I've had to start caring about how to win the mirror as Space Marines because I have one opening for anything other than Space Marines and one opening for Space Marines because Space Marines can do the same things I can and unfortunately like as a faction you pick like a particular hand of elite units that you'll be able to call down with those elite points during the game and you pick like a hand of passive abilities that you also have called Doctrines and it feels at the moment that there's like a correct choice there like there's not um, there's not a lot of it's a sort of a sigh of relief when you see what your opponent has and they don't have like <laughs> two there's basically two that feel mandatory for space marines and then the third one is kind of just for fun like a flavor pick but like that's not not a great place for the game to be and you no. want it to be interesting where you go like oh the guy doesn't have that ability like the two that feel really mandatory at the moment is um one is one that makes tactical marines which are like the basic space marines really fast when they're out of combat they can just run places um which is just really useful in a game that's a lot about territory control you can just get places really really quickly and out of the gate as well that kicks in the moment the game begins so you'll be getting your first tactical marines places faster than the enemy can um which is good in everything except the space marine mirror match because the other guy always has that so what's interesting about the space marine mirror match has become the thing you can do against every other race doesn't work and the other side of it is the thing that makes Space Marine Flamers really good because out of the gate, Space Marines seem to lose to like every other faction's basic infantry, which is a bit weird when you consider the fiction. <laughs> but um, as soon as they get upgraded, they're hugely powerful. And so that upgrade is something else everyone has sort of seems to want to rush. And so there's like, there's a sort of strange, um, slightly out of character kind of mind games with, with how that fits together. The other side of it though is that it's in like, I've started to see now, like, that game has an enormous skill ceiling. Like, a StarCraft-style skill ceiling. You mentioned it with grenades earlier and, and Reapers. Mm. Like, everything in Dawn of War is that, basically. <laughs> because, like, shitloads of things in Dawn of War cause knockback or stun, if used properly. And that includes, like, abilities on characters. Like, the Space Marine Scout has a stun grenade. Um, the Eldar uh, Dark Avengers, have, which is their basic infantry, have a grenade that does the same thing. But so do, like, for example, st- uh, Space Marine Drop Pods coming down also causes a knockback. Which is one thing, like, you, you know, chain disrupting an enemy unit is how you beat something, you know, you're not supposed to be able to beat technically is, is by not, is, you know, not just throwing all your stuns on them at once, but timing each individual unit and positioning your own unit so they're less vulnerable to that kind of thing, not grouping up, which takes a lot of execution. Yeah, yeah. It takes a lot of micro. Um, then, but the other thing is that, um, the punishment for being interrupted is massive so that if you get stunned, as your guy is throwing a grenade, for example, or about to use the flamethrower, which is all on... These are abilities on, like, hefty cooldowns, like one-minute cooldowns in a lot of cases, which it feels like an eternity in a fast-paced RTS. If you get, like, interrupted out of the startup animation, that cooldown is on now. You cannot do that thing. (laughs) So getting those things interrupted is massive. And that, as a result, I think there is presumably 
at the top level, a level of the game where people can see those kinds of things coming. And I don't think you can faint anything, but you can um, sort of anticipate the kinds of interruptions your opponent might be able to bring into play and and and, uh, and work around them. At the lower end, I think you probably don't even notice because people aren't even using their active abilities. They're just smashing armies into each other. I think I'm in the sort of awkward intermediate mm-hmm. stage now where both players are using their army abilities relatively frequently and basically correctly, but... Um, probably not optimally efficiently, which means that a lot of fights come down to who gets that key interrupt off first, which can feel a little bit random. And it's mm. devastating. Like you get one of those things wrong and your army is gone. Like it's, you're, it's done. Like you cannot come back from that. And then the game is probably over. And that's, um, pretty brutal actually. Like, yeah. um, and when it, when it goes, I think, um, it's most pronounced in one V1s where the advantage to pull is something like, that off versus how devastating it is to have it pulled off against you is pretty much everything like um and sometimes it works like uh, it works really well like the last game i played was spectacularly close and felt like a meaningful the kind of thing you want an rts game to be about it was like a meaningful back and forth tussle for all of the territory in the middle of the map with basically none of the combat happening anywhere near either of our bases like all of the different resource points changed hands throughout the game it wasn't just that we set up on our opposing halves built big armies and threw them at each other like we're each having to like faint and you know fake out attacks and gather up units and use them to push places we knew the enemy couldn't be because they're just committed somewhere else and when you time stuff right it feels amazing like it's such a cool because like so for example against space marines you can see their drop pods coming down you can see the like the timer on the ground and um there's like a um uh, like the the basic Space Marine elite unit is called the Death Watch Kill Team, which is like some elite Space Marines, basically. <laughs> the Death Watch Kill Team? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's the Kill Watch Death Team. <laughs> um, I said that with a straight face because I've been so steeped in Warhammer 40k recently that like, I just need to bat an eyelid. Like, um, the Skull Watch Skull Friends come down. <laughs> um, and, um, and they are like really cheap as hero units go. And they're pretty good and they're quite reliable. So people often bring them down because they just need a unit quickly. Um, but they can get fucked up very quickly by special weapons. And I had the, uh, like a dreadnought with a huge plasma gun, which has like a manually aimed plasma shot and just did the, the sort of, I guess it was a little inkling of what you can do if you really know what you're doing at a consistent level. I haven't pulled this off before, but fired the, saw the timer, like the three, two, one kind of gauge the travel time for the projectile from the, um, dreadnought effect successfully so that the huge kind of like plasma grenade thing flew through the drop into the drop pod as the drop pod opened. And just wrecked this entire, like, this entire elite unit before it even left the drop pod. And that fight was just over for that guy then, because that was his entire gambit. And even though he dropped the drop pod to stun some of my units, the guys inside were basically dead before they left. <laughs> so my units stand back up, kill them, then just move on. And his whole kind of plan has fallen apart. That stuff, when it happens, is really good. But I remember when the game was still, before it came out and Tom Senior had been playing it in preview, he said he thinks it's too complicated. And I think I'm, I might be getting towards agreeing with him. Because, yeah, yeah that was something that, the last part I was on, you were sort of saying that kind of, you know, that that that, that is more straightforward than something that, like um, I think StarCraft. And then, as I've been playing the campaign, it's all about those secondary abilities. Yeah, I think I think it's um, there are things about it that I do prefer to StarCraft in terms of where it. I think StarCraft could sometimes hide some of its complexity. And it's not necessarily as obvious how you optimally use those units. 
how you stagger step with units in order to get the right shots off. Mm-hmm. People have sort of mastered StarCraft at a mathematical level way above what a war looks like, right? Like it's a dance of kind of mad little micro movements that optimize the amount of damage someone will take while they're turning around. Like this doesn't feel like it feels a bit chunkier and more obvious, like why things have the effect that they do. Mm. Um, and when you do something, when you do something good, or even when you're beaten by something that's just clearly like I was outplayed there, it does actually feel pretty good. It's not like someone just engaged with the meta game at a level you don't understand and therefore has more units than you for reasons you don't quite fathom. Although that does happen. It's like, um, oh man, he, he positioned his drop pod because drop pod, like the knockback is like a radius. So if you drop it in the middle of a unit, they'll go in 360 degrees, which is actually not necessarily optimal because you might want them to all go in the same direction. So you mm. might want to offset it slightly to try and punt them. And if you can punt them correctly, you can sort of take a blob unit and sort of almost flatten it into a line <laughs> by doing like a radial knockback in one corner of it. And if you flatten them into a line and then have flamers lined up, <laughs> you can just flame across it. And that's like extremely high level Dawn of War where mm. it's like, oh shit, that was awesome. Like you did that. I deserve this. Um, <laughs> one thing is though that I think when you play it 2v2 or 3v3, having another player can soften the, yeah, your, your losses. Yeah. On your, on like your, if, if both of you get outplayed, then it's over. But if one of you gets outplayed and the other one is still building, like one player can basically sacrifice themselves to build time for the other one to build up and you share kind of resource points and things. So it feels kind of nice. And I still really like it, but it's at that time, it, it's gotten hard. It's gotten into the hard sort of thinky. I need to actually put some work in if I want to keep winning. Cause I had like, and this is the thing, like this is the thing that always happens. I'm now shrinking back down towards a 50% win rate. Whereas on, I was on like an 85% win rate for the first 15 hours. And now it's like, Oh God. <laughs> like now it's really difficult and that's not a bad thing by any stretch of the imagination but if you don't have a player base yeah, yeah. And, but also if you it's that it's that classic thing of like if you don't necessarily like have time to invest in like a a strategy game seriously like m- maybe my time with it is over now because mm-hmm. i'm into the this is now a commitment to getting good as yeah. opposed to a fun just a fun half hour playing space marines you know like hmm interesting like because now i can feel like cause it doesn't really have like a proper it has a leaderboard but it doesn't have like a robust ranked system or anything so there's none of that kind of starcraft like what ladder am i on mm. kind of journey it is just getting better in abstract to this particular that's interesting because it, yeah it's not necessarily your own time but it's yeah the fact that it's not giving you a structure to pull you into that kind yeah of high apart level from the play. global leaderboard which is yeah. a bigger you know, challenge than I think I'm probably up for, really. So, yeah, I do like it. Like, I think they've made a really interesting strategy game, but there's, I don't know, just a strange one in some ways. Like, uh, I, I maybe it would be fun if I had more people to play it with. Like, I don't have anyone that I buddy with or anything to play multiplayer. I just would go with randoms. Um, and maybe that's not yeah, what ideal. Yeah, like? Have, have, pretty nice. Like, I've never had any abuse. Like, it's been pretty solid. Um people ping things when they want things they say you know what drop pods they've got ready that kind of thing it's cool it's all right um the other thing i've been playing which is kind of the opposite end of the spectrum but i want to talk about because we've not really talked about it and it's it's the big thing all the kids are into so it's probably going to stop being the big thing all the kids are into as soon as i said this <laughs> is um and you have to shout this unfortunately player on those battlegrounds whatever it's called um it's funny i i have i'm amused by you see people tweeting that they've been playing it and they are like us kind of people mm. like the old men not the <laughs> not the 
Not so it's not huge on Twitch, kids. which is why yeah. you don't notice because you just got time, right? Yeah. Um, but like, um, so it's huge on Twitch and you can see why. Um, but actually I'm a bit, so I really like the idea of battle royale games. Um, like H1Z1, King of the Hill, and The Culling, I think I spoke about on the podcast previously. Mm. Um, I think Hunger Games Battle Royale is a perfect setup for a multiplayer video game. Um, and I really like DayZ at its peak as well, which is part of this same yeah. sort of arc in, in recent shooter design, at least. Um, and this is absolutely, that's an early access, costs 25 quid-ish, you know, so it's sort of premium early access. Um, hugely, hugely successful already, as you might expect. But because it also belongs to the, in some, to some extent, to the janky survival game kind of style of early access, there's almost like a kind of, I almost have an inherent kind of distrust of it. <laughs> it's actually quite a good looking game in terms of its environments. It's very armor, right? Like it's, it's extremely armor. I think it's based on armor. It looks like armor, feels like armor, quacks like an armor. Like, um, it looks pretty nice, except all of the kind of character models are not, they're not bad, but they're just sort of like, um, you know, faceless Gennaro people occupying a stretch of sort of an island that is also somehow Eastern Europe, um, <laughs> in for the purpose of, of shooting each other in a kind of Hunger Games adventure. Um, it's basically Daisy. It's basically the things people ended up actually doing in Daisy, not the kind of mad emergent thing everyone thought Daisy was going to be. Like people thought that Daisy would be a game about crazy emergent adventures where you got kidnapped by people and they stole your beans or whatever. Um, which is amazing because it happens exactly once. And then eventually that player base realized <laughs> that the most efficient thing to do is to shoot people and then take their stuff and not have an actual interaction. Yeah, there, with was no, yeah there was no real contest. Yeah, there was no real decision there. I remember having a a talking to Dean Hall about the future of DayZ where it was going to be all about sort of a Mad Max style wasteland where people would create their own bunkers to survive in and have their own like scientific labs for like understanding things blah, 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 blah. nope what people wanted was a king of the hill game basically which is why h1z1 ended up doing what it's done um and this is basically that but actually that's kind of perfect because it's sort of like a daisy game that's over in half an hour um <laughs> you do get the standoffs as well you, you do you don't want to get you don't want to die and you kind of people do open i've never seen two people who are both armed have anything other than a right. shooting match like it's a shooter it's not there's no talking like except with your team if you're with the team um but the way it works uh, i'm impressed by its network technology actually talking about kind of like big multiplayer games is um you queue up for a game you load onto a little island where no one can die but everyone's shooting guns at each other anyway and it slowly just loads until there are like 100 people on this island jumping around in their pants like just bouncing around being in pants looking janky enjoying kind of armor style dodgy rolling about <laughs> wonky runs silly <laughs> shit that you can do um then when everyone's ready it kicks you into a uh passenger jet not a passenger jet like a what they call it big um, cargo planes yeah, like yeah. you know cargo big plane. military cargo plane kind of thing um amusingly if anyone managed to set themselves on fire while they were on the island at the start you don't die they, the particle effect for them being on fire continues <laughs> and so the plane has fire trailing from it based on whoever's on fire and at that point you can actually press the button to switch to first person and just look down this endless row of identical kind of like gap adorned Gennaro douches kind of like lining the inside of this plane um, the plane crosses the island on a straight in a straight line but that straight line is randomly generated 
so it doesn't always cross the island the same way, which is kind of important because it changes what places you might end up beginning in and also um, like what places are likely to not have any players in near the start as soon as you figure out what the island's sort of direction is. Um, then as soon as you're over the island, you can jump out of the plane at any point. Um, so hmm. you pick and there's some strategy in that in terms of if you go over a city, it's quite likely a lot of other players. If you go straight away, there's quite a lot of, there's a lot, likely a lot of players just hammering the F key, like until they can get out of the plane as soon as possible. Um, and then there's a reasonably good skydiving bit <laughs> where you, um, you know, you start off skydiving and you can tilt back and forwards and try and go faster and slower and slow yourself down and steer a bit. And then you can open your parachute at any point. Um, but there's a minimum altitude where you have to open your parachute. Um, and that brings you down to the ground. And then it is a game about Daisy style looking at a load of houses going, are any of the doors open? If any of the doors are open, a player's been in there. So A, there's probably nothing there and B, they might already have it and they might kill me with it. Um, so you run around, you find some houses, you open those doors, you loot guns and things. You find guns and gear at a much greater rate than Daisy. And there's no food really. There's like energy drinks, but they have like a buff effect. It's all game stuff. It's not. You're finding bandages, weapon attachments, guns, melee weapons, you know, motorcycle helmets to protect your head, like flak jackets. Um, unlike the culling, it doesn't have like a crafting system, which I thought didn't work at all, like punching trees to make a bow. <laughs> uh, it's all about run, find a gun. And then um, and then, very soon into the match, um, you've always got a counter in the top right of how many players are left. Um, when you die, you just go back to the main menu and queue for another one. All right. You just, you're out. You can carry watching, but you can only see the place where you died. Oh, right. <laughs> can't, you can't follow the players. I don't think so. I, never, I suppose that's a griefing thing, isn't it? It's kind of the idea as well as that you just, you're just out. Like that was your run. You're out. Mm. Um, and, um, and then after a while, the game will kind of draw a circle on the map, like initially a big one, like covering maybe a quarter of the island. And there's a force field that gradually approaches and converges on that circle. And so that ushers all the players into that point. And that just keeps shrinking as the game goes on until it's like a 20 foot square slice of ground when there's only three people left at that initial hundred. And, um, there are vehicles, buggies and bikes and jeeps and stuff. Um, and there are occasionally bomb zones where a certain area of the map is designated in red and it just starts blowing up. You hear the sound of like a plane going over, but mostly it just starts blowing up. Um, and weirdly, like, I'm not even cynical about this kind of thing, but actually it all works really, really well. Yeah. Like, um, there's a, when I started playing it, I think it was my fourth game that I got a kill basically. <laughs> like you die really easily. And that's why I think it's important that you can go back to the menu and just queue for a different one. Yeah. So it's a sort of, it's a very hot and cold game where you can't really sit down and plan. Like I'll just have a 15 minute game of this. Cause you might have a, three minute game of that <laughs> where you land next to somebody and you just punch each other and one of you dies first um or you can have like a what like a half hour 45 minute tensest game of your life game of it um and also it's a game that often ends in like a total anticlimax because you often don't see the bullet that kills you like it's just someone else got a bead on you you never saw them you hear a bang and then you it's over whatever however <laughs> long you've been playing it, it's just over now uh, I really like to play it with people. I'm going to do that. And that's, I think, how I see it. When you see people playing on videos or on streams, they often have like a posse that they go in with. And there's like a team mode designed for that. I've only been playing it solo. So it's a very specific experience of it. But actually, like, I think what impresses me about it is that I worry with these things that they're just a kind of mad kind of Skinner box that it's sort of like a roguelike FPS where you load it up, you just see what happens. And then 
you know, you go back to it. But actually, like, there's quite a lot of strategy and enough elements that um, you do meaningfully get better at it. Um, and you can get meaningfully different situations out of the sort of the natural circumstances of what happens in those initial minutes. Mm. So there's a nice rhythm to like the first couple of minutes don't really matter because if you die, you start a new game. If you get great stuff, then you want to protect it. So the stakes get really high really quickly, but the stakes don't almost start high. Like when you're just a, not a naked man, but a man in a t-shirt and jeans falling out of a plane, there's, you got nothing to lose really. As soon as you get into that first building and there's something precious in it, like a, a great assault rifle with a scope or something like that, which you, which will help you in lots of different circumstances. Um, you want to get out of it sometimes you'll find something weird will happen like you'll be on there's like an island with an airport on it that's sort of detached from the main island but connected it to it by a couple of bridges and i've parachuted into that with like six other players at one point and then the the zone you have to get to where the island's going to shrink where the force field's going to shrink to just have to be the other side of the island which meant we were all fucked unless <laughs> one of us can find a car because you can't you won't be able to run it like it's too far it's kilometers but if you get a car you can just about make it and then like everyone sees there's like a buggy out in the open, but no one wants to be the one that runs for it. But then that area is also designated as a bomb zone. So everything <laughs> just goes mad. And I didn't end up surviving that, but it was a great moment of just like, I only had a crossbow, which takes an age to reload. And just the sort of the mad dash of like people just going for it. Um, <laughs> you know, I've had the one where I've managed to find a bike by a miracle, right as the force field was catching up with me and just drive ahead of it. Like seeing other players just sprinting because if you if you have anything with an engine they make a lot of noise people will see where you're coming from but they're just sprinting away from the force field as well and i'm right riding my stupid motorbike with an empty sidecar just like over hills just trying to escape this thing and cool moments i had a really one of my favorite openings to a to I, i've um i've now i know i've never won one i've come top 15 a couple of times now and that gets really tense towards the end in a really cool way because it really matters at that point um one of the coolest openings i've had was um making an interesting strategic decision because sometimes you want to come down as fast as possible like you want to skydive with your head pointing at the ground and then parachute basically straight down onto the ground because you can't dive from the parachute at least i've never seen it happen um so that you can get into the buildings first and find the best stuff but the thing is parachutes are very visible so if you come down second you can often see where people have gone and I opened my parachute probably way too early and just spent a fucking million years <laughs> Feeling like very it. slowly <laughs> come, like orbiting, coming down above this town. And I could already see like players below me, like running in and out of houses, shooting each other, punching each other on the ground, like, you know, going through all the stages of, of life. And like I was sort of slowly orbiting down from the sky. One guy um, got a buggy and drove it like through the town and then stopped at this building at the edge of town. And I sort of get out of the buggy and go into the building. And I managed to bring my parachute down directly next to his car, get in his car and fuck off. <laughs> and he could, and, um, I just remember sort of like looking behind to see him run out of the building and start firing shots above <laughs> me, like, are you fucking asshole? And I, that was one of the ones I came top 15. Basically, because I got his car at the beginning, I suddenly had that freedom to go completely off piste, like away from the direction that the plane took. So away from anywhere players are likely to have been able to get on foot and just loot a whole town to myself, get really geared up, and then drive to the middle of the circle that the map will shrink around. And it doesn't, to its credit, it doesn't shrink consistently around that center. So, so once it forms its first, sure. yeah, yeah, once it forms its first circle, it will then form another circle within that circle, but it won't necessarily be in the center of it. So right. you can't know the exact center point, which is good, because otherwise that would be the a battleground from the beginning, right? Because if you just occupy that, mm. then you win. Um 
got all my gear, found somewhere pretty safe in the middle of it, parked the buggy outside a little shed and just stood and sat in a shed for 15 minutes. <laughs> and I couldn't like idly read Twitter or anything um, because I'd gotten like almost ahead of the curve really quickly from initially stealing someone's car, like already pretty well Did geared. you hide the, your ride? So no, I left it outside and because you play in a third person camera, you can cheat a bit, look around corners. Left it so I could see it so that someone might go and take it, in which case I could pop the door up and shoot them and then come back in. Yeah. I dropped all my spare guns in a pile in front of the door. So if they didn't open the door, they'd see them first. And that worked. Like someone opened the door and, ooh, and then I killed them. <laughs> um, and then just waited there for like 15, 20 minutes. Like, cause there's nothing to do at that point except wait to see where the circle shrinks to and then just wait to see what happens next and just wait. And it's really interesting that like, the pace of it changes so dramatically from kind of initial rush to like getting your stuff to either dying or not. And then to this mid game where like, I spent an equal amount of time just lying in a bush, like overlooking the area I know it's going to shrink to, just listening. Because you can't listen to music or listen to a podcast or anything because sound <laughs> is incredibly important. There's no way of seeing other players on your radar at all. Um, you have to be able to, but hearing them is everything. Hearing engines in the distance will tell you that someone's coming in a car. Like, I don't know, there's something kind of like, and then it gets sort of weirdly peaceful and atmospheric despite it being presented in this kind of like Blair or Nodes Battlegrounds kind of dude bro tribal tattoo yeah ex- wolf explosion kind of aesthetic um yeah it's it's a weird it's a weird thing but uh, i never played king of the hill h1z1 so i don't know how similar it is i imagine it's quite similar but yeah. i only played the minecraft ones years ago yeah but um yeah to i would i we should do that yeah I we should play that yeah it's fun like there's a nice sort of it doesn't really matter if you lose at the end. It's always anticlimactic to have that kind of like, oh God, no. But you always, so far I've always felt that I've died because I've made like a fatal error right at the end. Like I've revealed myself, my position, particularly when you get those really tense ones where it'll just come down to like, you want to hide somewhere in this forest where you know it's going to end, but you want to hide somewhere you can't be flanked or caught out. And, but then you go for that one shot that you just shouldn't take to try and kill someone because you've seen them first, but you fuck it up and they turn, but it's not, it's not that that kills you. It's the other guy who hears that shot that kills you. Um, I've even taken advantage of that. But like, I noticed at one point that I saw one person enter a town. I saw a different person enter the same town from a different direction. Then I caught a glimpse of the other guy like looting a building. And just, I was on a nearby hillside, just fired a couple of shots at him. And as soon as he shot back, I ran back up the hill, got in my bike and left. And then I could hear the gunshots because as soon as that happens, you set them against each other and then yeah. you just leave. Yeah. And that's a really cool, like, because yeah. you don't, winning is not, you know. Yeah, you, you don't have to kill people to win. No, you do not. You just have to survive and yeah. get them to kill each other. And yeah, it's cool. Yeah, genuinely fun. Like it. Looking, We should definitely um, definitely play a little bit more of it. I, I can see with it, I, I suppose I've become naturally cynical about games that are so clearly great for Twitch, so clearly great for YouTube, but maybe that's just because they generate funny moments with enough regularity that it's good they're good to play as well yeah and who it's is nice. sorry who is player unknown i think he, he was, was a developer H1 on h1z1 ah okay um, yeah i remember reading that the the reason it's called that is because people some people know who that is <laughs> yeah do not know and maybe battlegrounds is trademarked by something else you did that yeah i think they probably would have liked to call it battle royale but <laughs> i'm sure that is trademarked yeah yeah but no it's um it looks like it's easy to be cynical about things that have that aesthetic because it is the look of 
the Daisy clone with but, a with a Dubro thing over the top. So yeah. it's kind of what it, <laughs> what it's lost in the kind of the mod scrappiness. It's gained in Dubro ness. Dude, one bro, one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, yeah, like, and you know, yeah. So you make a character when you boot it up, and that character is tied to your Steam account. And you can never change them. Um, and I just like click through because I wanted to play it, and I ended up with a guy who looks like Nathan Fillion, <laughs> essentially. So getting around that, um, and changing that character costs like three thousand currency, and you maybe get like between fifty and a hundred for a game. <laughs> so it's a lot. It's a lot of grind, and you can like, but you can buy like loot chests for a scaling amount that starts at seven hundred, and the second one is fourteen hundred. <sighs> so as soon as I got to seven hundred points, it's like I'll buy a loot chest and get a new hat to begin the game with or whatever and i got a pair of old working boots from it. it's like, this is the least only that as well oh, the people on the plane will really be impressed with yeah, me. it's like this is the least satisfactory like loot box experience i've ever had so that's the f- definitely feels super rudimentary is there but a real money way of getting it this? feels like a hook for one yeah mm. like there's like if you if you like link it to your twitch account you get like a twitch t-shirt hmm. stuff like that so i think they're going to do loads of stuff with that it's completely unnecessary though, because like, also if you kill someone, you can steal their clothes. Huh. Um, oh, that you keep the that gets tied to your. Account. No, you don't. Oh, you just, just wear it for the duration of the game. But like, that's what it's for, right? Like, uh, it's worth taking off bright clothes and putting on darker clothes because then you're less easy yeah. to spot. Um. Yeah, it's nice. Player unknowns battlegrounds. Player unknowns battlegrounds. Player unknowns. Pubga, as it's battle often grounds. called. Pubga. Pubga. Punk was bats. It? Punk bat was, was it? yeah, I think that's Alice O'Connor's name for it, which is great. Yeah. It should totally just be called Punk Bat. Um <laughs> But yeah. Uh it's fast Daisy, which turns out is the correct way to do Daisy. My experiences of Daisy were exclusively walking through unoccupied forests and wanting to start playing <laughs> a game. Mm. Yeah, it sounds like Daisy. Because I couldn't enjoy walking through the forests because I was constantly afraid of being shot, and yet I never was shot at. <laughs> I think that's the thing. Like the PC gamer live stream we did, which went up as a magazine feature, is like the greatest Daisy experience I've ever had, and will ever have. And it was amazing, and it took advantage of all of the things that game can do, and it will never happen again, and it's completely unrepeatable. Whereas I think, yeah, again, it's that, that cynical sort of dialing back of ambition thing where it's like, if this was just a game that lasted half an hour, a bunch of people tried to shoot each other on an island, it would probably be fine. Yeah. And that's what this is. It's the sort of, it's the reasonable scope Daisy, which is a less sexy name than Player Unknown's Battlegrounds. <laughs> well scoped gun survival game. <laughs> Two. Royale. Should we do questions? Yes. Good. That's never going to not be awkward, is it? <laughs> Have we ever done that seamlessly? I don't uh, think so. I thought it looked really natural. My favourite times were when we comment on it to make sure that if anyone did think it was natural, that, that now they don't. <laughs> well, then you'll love this <laughs> that is happening now. Thanks, Tom. Second tier commenting. Wow. Everything's better down where it's meta, <laughs> as they sang in The Little Mermaid. Pierre writes... Cars, bikes, boats, planes, helicopters, lorries, quads, running, horses, magic, eagles, flying, etc. What's the funnest way to get around? Grappling hook and parash- paraglidy thing. What's yeah. a paraglider? Parasail? Parasail, yeah. Just cause. <laughs> the just cause thing. 
Um, actually, particularly Just Cause 3, where you have the wingsuit as well, because then it's about, like, you kind of use your grappling hook to get up speed, use your parasail to, you know, get lift. But then once you kind of have enough speed, you can just use the wingsuit and kind of skim close to the ground and you get a bit of lift doing that. And that's the one game where I will just like, I'll start going somewhere and then I'll just get so into movement that I'll just spend the next 10 minutes just flying mm. around the island with no objective just to enjoy it. That's how I feel about skiing and jetpacks, also, hmm. as it's also known, tribes. Because <laughs> <laughs> the good thing about the tribe system is means the ground isn't your enemy in the way it is with the grapple hook and para wingsuit system. <laughs> you know, it's just another part of the journey, man. <laughs> <laughs> well said. <laughs> Alex? Batman, it's much more simple. <laughs> I like to ride like Batman around. Super. Get on his shoulders. <laughs> like, Tell him where to go. where the skill's been removed pretty much in Batman City, mm. Arkham City. and Batman, Arkham City. Batman City. Batman City. Batman That's, City. That is where it's We set, Batman it? City on rock and roll. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, that was a stupid, that was a stupid thing to say. I was going to do like a take me down to Batman City thing, yeah, but like, yeah. I have to finish it. <laughs> <laughs> um i've lost my thread uh the answer is yes Batman. gliding what cape gliding gliding right? that's what you're talking yeah, about gliding, gliding jetpacks skiing etc not mm. horses yeah none of them Tradition. are vehicles or or human modes of movement you just need a bit of skill in it though that's the thing a little bit of skill a little bit of skill and i think it's because you want to do something while you're moving that's the thing yeah, you want to be. That sound like song lyrics. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you got to do something when you move in. In Batman City, I did. I, did. <laughs> I purposefully uh. didn't pronounce my G's as well, like a real rock and roll star. <laughs> you are the most rock and roll person I know, Alex. Thanks, man. You are. <laughs> Just you know, don't let all that Minecraft book money turn you into a monster. <laughs> Lying in piles of the stuff. Yeah, exactly. Oh. Uh, it's happened before. Um, uh, Javier writes, Dear Crooks and Criminals, As a member of the Payday 2 community, I found your discussion about keeping games with a long life alive to be really fascinating. Payday 2 has secretly existed as a sort of MMO, adding a little bit of new content every couple of months. Many players have hundreds of hours and hardcore players have thousands. This investment in the game means every disagreement has gone absolutely nuclear. Most games journalists, and he puts the that, that phrase in, in inverted commas, <laughs> as it should be. So called. Um, know the game due to the meltdown last year when they added microtransactions despite promising to never do so. This resolved itself in the best way possible. They, I think he means the developers, bought themselves out of their distribution agreement and removed microtransactions, although not retroactively. Still, during this time, there was a huge campaign of changing reviews on Steam, which got the game from 90% to 70-something. It was hilarious to see so many reviews like 2,000 hours do not buy this game. Javier. So not really a question, but like a sort of update from a community we don't hear from very often. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, Payday was always like on my radar as um, uh, this thing that was so much huger than, than you know, we could possibly acknowledge not being part of that community. It just kept selling just crazy mm. amounts. And then when they um, did add microtransactions, they probably made a lot of money from that. <laughs> Although they also pissed off everybody. You could, as, you could say, they got a big Payday <laughs> two, yes, indeed. Um, 
Yeah, it's funny about the, the Steam reviews thing because they're, they're often user activism now and it's hard to say what should, you know, does the system need to change? Because after the change they're asking for has happened, which in this case it sounds like it did, those reviews are now invalid by everyone's standards, including the person who wrote it. Yeah, and there's also, I mean, there is a sense in the gaming community around reviews that reviews can and even should be punitive if a developer is believed yeah. to have done wrong yeah you absolutely see that in the the comments threads for reviews well on metacritic like critics versus the user score when there's a game that has some contentious problem the critics will give it like 60 percent, and the users will give it zero <laughs> yeah if they like it it's 10 yeah. yeah and that's an it's an interesting phenomena like because reviews absolutely shouldn't do that they do not have that role the purpose yeah. of a review is to tell something tell you something is good it's not to punish like, if anything, the last person a review should be concerned with is the developer and what they have and haven't done. Mm. Obviously, if something has the bearing on the experience of a consumer, then yeah, absolutely. But if it's like, um, the, you know, the sort of the strange kind of conflicting thing that stops anything from being objective, yet is insisted upon by people who insist that reviews be objective, like this developer endorses a particular kind of DRM, therefore you should punish them in the review score for a game yeah. that has nothing to do with that, you know if something is is if their you know security software is making the game harder to run and less fun to play then you factor that in presumably but the notion that something so has almost like symbolic value that needs to be represented are you in talking the about rhyme there because that was the most recent one i noticed about that exact it's, argument uh, it's it's i actually wasn't and it's such a repeated theme yeah. that i can just yeah. yeah you can trot it out but it's funny though because the kind of people who are active in doing that kind of thing are a very self-selecting group and payday two developers will know far more about how representative and how what proportion they take of the, the game's overall playing population and which is kind of but of course that's not the impression that any prospective buyer or, or kind of the outside world ever takes because you see the page and you think everybody hates that game <laughs> you know and that's not necessarily true at all because it's going to be the kind of people who take to writing long reviews or like or nasty spirited reviews are kind of a self-selecting kind of bunch yeah exactly yeah it's like comment threads we gamified misery Game <laughs> thanks team thanks everyone <laughs> uh next up is friend of the pod john t john hicks Lovely everybody john gamer networks john hicks who helped us put together the uh, rest show made that happen hmm. Thanks, John T. Here's his question. Dear friends. Actual IRL friends. Actual IRL friends. Basically responsible for me being in the games industry. I, 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 with you, Alex, weirdly. Oh, There's the two of you. Because I got, I got really... that's when he was the editor of yeah. Xbox. Yeah, I got really, really drunk with him after the Eurogamer Expo in 2010. <laughs> and through that, I ended up giving my... Sending some work to Mike Channel, who was at that time... Who, of Outside Xbox, who was yeah. at that time a deputy editor of Official Xbox. And he sent that to you on edge and then you secretly hired me to review indie games for a while and that was the beginning of my entire life changing sorry. forever <laughs> sorry apology accepted sorry. <laughs> anyway john t's life john t's life john t's question is <laughs> john t's life is, john t's, <laughs> let's do john t's life i'll summarize <laughs> I, um <laughs> dear friends john t writes I have finally caught up with the Bundvacheg episode, which is outstanding. <laughs> well, high five there, Alex. Sorry, John. <laughs> My hypothesis is that the re repeated references to lewd and narrative dissonance drink. Yep. 
You just made a little noise. <laughs> you responsible noise. driving so and so. I did think I wanted to I I was I was toying with having a beer. Anyway. Actually, the plot twist of that entire episode is that Alex wasn't drinking. <laughs> <laughs> I did have a little bit. I had some Oh yeah, a little yeah, near the start, uh, but yeah. Yeah. But being a dad doesn't take much. Doesn't take much. <laughs> Didn't take anything. Not much for a dad. In the first half meant that everyone had to take multiple drinks early on, meaning that you were thoroughly plastered by the time the questions rolled around. Given that I can't test this by asking a question because you wouldn't hit the trigger phrase until too late for it to have such an impact, I'm wondering how to force its inclusion in future episodes. So my question is, what future games, confirmed or hypothetical, would you anticipate to be hotbeds of lewd narrative dissonance? I'll have a word with the industry Illuminati and see if we can have them all be in the headlines at once, thus forcing an early run of extra drinking and confirming or denying my theory. <laughs> Keep up the good work, sloshed or otherwise jaunty, who remains ever the scientist. <laughs> yeah. That's an extremely like, sociopathic way to go about <laughs> bringing you back good podcast material. Classic jaunty. That's classic jaunty. Thanks, um, jaunty. I think, uh, well, you know, there's all these rumors that there's a new Elder Scrolls to be announced, presumably. Mm. I think that's prime territory. Okay. Far Cry 5 is prime territory. Yeah, that was the first one. Oh. Like, that's mind. just going to be full of it. Because guess what? Real America doesn't have... Oh, well, it has a lot of those things, I think, actually. Um... <laughs> You're a policeman. <laughs> You're a policeman sent in to, like, defuse the situation? And I'm just going to guess, but I don't think you defuse it. <laughs> I think you make it. The trailer pointedly does have worse. a bit where a man a man is being chased by a bear. Which, like, <laughs> things got out of hand. And you could say that... Case was, closed. <laughs> you could say that aspect of your narrative setup was dissonant with the Ludo. Exactly. Um... Which is not to be confused with Lido narrative dissonance, which is what, what happens if you stole someone's swimming pool apparatus <laughs> and you try and you tell them a tall tale in order to get away with it. I'm not sure that quite matches up to what I'm saying exactly. with my Lido. Here. No, I bought this. This is my Lido. It's definitely... What do you mean? It's... Yeah, et cetera. It wasn't, I didn't think that bit through. Um, yeah, Elsgore is a really obvious contender for this. Assassin's Creed is a really obvious contender for this. There was like a bit of leaked... God, game leaks are the stupidest thing. It was like a leaked physical bit of card for pre-ordering Assassin's Creed Origins Egypt 2. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, Chris. Where you have a pet eagle. Because there was a big sign at a previous E3 that was like, pre-order now to unlock special trousers. <laughs> <laughs> this was pre-order now to unlock the secrets of the first pyramids. Right. I think it was uh, like Brotherhood or something, or maybe even Assassin's Creed 3, there was an unlock secret trousers. Oh, yeah. No, that was, um, no, it was Assassin's Creed Unity. It was Unity, because okay. Unity was the one that had like a loot system, like right. a meaningful trouser-centric <laughs> loot system. Maybe it was pants, actually, because it, pants, it was, yeah. they would have phrased it in American, right? Yeah. Yeah, it wouldn't have been trousers. But I mean, but it's set in London. Both words oh, are It was Paris, yeah. So it's all pantaloons. <laughs> Pantalon. Oh, the Pantalon secret pantaloons. Exactly. <laughs> Le pantalons secret. <laughs> no. I'm so good at French. <laughs> I'm pretty sure a special is Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> pantalons. Special. <laughs> 
Why have you done this to us, John T? <laughs> you somehow managed it. <laughs> Thus disproving your theory entirely. <laughs> Joke's on you. <laughs> if I was telling someone a false narrative about how I stole their Lido and they caught me in it, my justification would be, well, it's a Lido, not a truth though. <laughs> oh no (laughs) (laughs) I started imagining what a ludomancer would be ludomancer (laughs) the ludomancers attack of the ludomancers just make games game summoner yeah (laughs) (laughs) they make your world into a game just throw a Rubik's Cube at someone's head (laughs) (laughs) that'd be really annoying they'd sort of like dance around (laughs) Like the Riddler, basically. Mm. There you go. Yeah, Ludo from Master. Batman City. <laughs> <laughs> the Ludo Man. <laughs> Riddle Man from Batman City. <laughs> Where the grass is green and the girls are <laughs> We got there. We Where got his, there. That was the, the character's line. green and, and <laughs> the, the riddles, riddles are shitty. This is going a bit Bunvacek. Oh, no, it's going a bit Bunvacek. It's you, Alex. It's you. It's always you. <laughs> it was John T's fault, though. He started yeah. this one. <laughs> can't believe we've managed to come up with an alternative theme tune for Batman in the space of answering this question about something. <laughs> what was it about? Far Cry. <laughs> it's probably about Far Cry. Um, Patrick writes, Dear Pip and Pip's sidekicks, on the last pod, you talked about watching RTSs be played by people skilled at micro. The rat-a-tat-tat of shields deploying in StarCraft, each one a manual click from someone with an APM count comparable to a hummingbird heart. Perhaps it's because I've been playing an unhealthy quantity of automatum, automation them up. That's hard to say. Um, Factorio recently, and have been inspired by discussions of quadrilateral cowboy, hack mud, and various Zactronics games. But do you see a place for automation in RTSs? As an owner of poor reaction times, I confess my ignorance here. I know scripting is the bane of FPS, at least. However, much like the suggestion to have a no-drug-testing league for certain sports, could there be a niche for task offloading in an RTS, or would this quickly devolve to who can write the best AI? I'm just... <coughs> I sneezed. <laughs> <laughs> who, who can write the best AI? <laughs> A combination of automated tools and human ingenuity could lead to an epic chess boxing like blend, but I don't know if it could work. Thoughts, Patrick. I'm going to see. <laughs> oh no. I apologize profusely for the fact that your question made me sneeze for some reason. <laughs> You're allergic to this kind of questioning. Um, I really like Supreme Commander for this. It, it autom- lets you automate a whole load of things, like you can have do stuff like this factory should build units that go to this location and when they arrive at that location they should start patrolling in this pattern and they'll just do that forever and it should build an infinite number of those units and also it should build two of this type of unit and then one of that and then one of that and then it should loop that build queue um yeah it's really good for that kind of thing Mm. um i also my uh one of the i always wanted to make an rts and one part of that plan was that um you know how when you have like a, a meta game strategy map and the, a battle come happens on that and you have a choice of whether to auto resolve it or play it yourself my idea was you should have to if you want to auto resolve it you've got to it's like a base ai but you can tell it how aggressive to be or like which units to value you can tell it like this 
I don't know if it was Starcraft, like roaches are worth like three points or favor them this much or use them in this situation. And so you would have to design that AI to some extent and that would be what auto-resolves. So whether the auto-resolve is successful depends on how well you, you develop that. And then, of course, the game would quietly populate that to other people's games as enemies. So you'd be incentivized to make the best one you could and then it would be spread to other people as an so opponent. There's a, there's a game that is being made at the moment Going back, it's, it's on. It's another game that's using spatial OS, which is a an RTS set in a in a kind of a universe, and you're taking over planets. <laughs> universe, interesting. <laughs> in a world, I haven't played one of those. It's really genuine. Um, and you 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 invade worlds, and then you capture them for yourself. You're playing against AI, but then there'll be other players also. So you might be against humans, <clears> you might be against um, just AI. Um, and then once you've got an empire, you you know other players can be attacking your planets and your bases on those planets and you can assign ai to manage those while you're and because it's all persistent it's happening when you're offline so it has to have systems that allow your empire to sustain itself while you're not playing and mm -hmm. that involves programming or i don't know how deep that system is going to be but you'll be managing an ai to do that yeah my thinking was like well it, when you're making an ai for a strategy game anyway you're probably going to make some kind of architecture into which you can plug values for for like how important is it to take a mineral line early on or a second base or whatever um, and whatever those values are you're going to have to leave them variable because you want to adjust them as the game goes on as balance changes and everything and so if you if they're variable then why can't the player change them and then that obviously leads to them designing ais I mean, the fact is, like medium or high level StarCraft play, or you know, most ITS play, you know, you are doing your build, you know, you are doing builds, and they are fundamentally programmed. Mm. Like, the only difference is that between, you know, can you execute them, or is it all right to kind of just have it done for you mm. automatically? Yeah, yeah, I'd be into that idea. I like the idea of having some of this stuff be sort of pre-planned. I think one of the things that doesn't quite come off with dawn of war actually going back to it briefly is that you you do make some sort of pre-game decisions about what bonuses and things you're going to bring with you which influences the way you're going to build your base in a pretty strong way you're inevitably going to want to build towards those advantages that you've given yourself depending on the matchup mm. but it almost given that particularly given that game's emphasis on sort of manual skill micro it would almost be interesting to have the version of it where you plan out on the map in advance how you want your little servitor units to go out and build your base and you just focus on the the battle commanding thing like a strategy phase and a tactics phase where the strategy phase is programming and the tactics phase is point and click kind mm. of action stuff mm. like i'd play that game would it feel like just rock paper scissors you know as opposed to something more live who knows who knows until Tom makes the game. <laughs> <laughs> Don't hold your breath. <laughs> this is a good one. Steve writes, Dear Creighton Crowbar, <clears throat> As game critics, which he didn't put in inverted commas, <laughs> what do you think is the... The problem with Arsenal is they always try and walk it into the back of the net of games criticism. <laughs> Cheers, Steve. So if you're not aware of british sitcom the it crowd um this might one bear might bear, might bear explaining given that i appreciate that we have an international audience um 
that phrase is used as a sort of stand-in for something you can comfortably say about football that makes you sound like you know what you're talking about, even if you have no idea how to have a conversation about football with another human being. Yeah, mine, this is like coming at it from the perspective of that being actually a terrible thing to say, <laughs> like a, a, a obviously transparently stupid thing to say. Um, but uh, you can't just go in guns blazing. That line just can't <laughs> every fucking review I read for like 10 years. And Any immersive like, sim. You never can. It's just, that's just not. <laughs> <laughs> and then the, more recently, the, the, obviously that actually only does apply to a certain genre of games. I mean, uh, although, you know, you want to say like Call of Duty is a game where you can go in guns blazing. But Settlers no, of you Catan, can't. you can't just go in guns blazing. <laughs> Call of Duty, you got to hide behind crates. you got to duck out. You can't just go in guns blazing. Um, and then the other one is, it's not without its flaws. <laughs> Every fucking... Re- of course it isn't. Nothing is. Yeah. There's variance on, for the right kind of player. <laughs> yeah. Ex- yeah. But that's, that is that kind of like... If it's fans a, of the genre. Fans of the genre. Um, hmm. We're getting to the band cliche list. Yeah. This is like, like this, this is, but, but this, yeah, Graham's like smorgasbord. My yeah, number what, what bad. Is the, there a good one? Sudi, well, not, yeah, it's not quite Sudi, but it's the kind of, yeah. I don't know what I'm talking about, but there's, I want to appear like I do. There's, mm. It's evolution, not revolution, but that's also a terrible cliche that must be bad. I mean, anything, if we were, if we were a bunch of like football fans talking about this, we would be saying that phrase that Arsenal was trying to walk it in would yeah. be banned, right? That would be a fucking sick cliche we're all sick of and it's stupid. So I think whatever the phrase is for games journalism, it'll be a cliche we're sick of. Mm. Yeah, I think, um, can't just go and begun blazing is a really good pick for that reason uh, hmm. I think that it tends to always when this sort of thing steeps into star guides it's always around specific words so visceral hmm. being hmm. broadly banned yeah. for good reason and people really like that word hmm. as if it does mean something <laughs> interesting I hate I'm, I'm a, I, uh, I've, hard I've to avoid. committed that one so many times. <laughs> I mean, I, I totally agree. It's, it's terrible. It's the worst word because essentially what it means is this prompted me to think or experience something. That's <laughs> 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 yeah, true. This held my interest as a receptive brain with eyes attached. God, if you want to talk to like game designers, that's the, the only word you'll ever get. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. just everything is like, that's but the only virtue we know. to express things. <laughs> yeah, but it's the problem because everything true. kind of is interesting. And to be honest, if we're all honest with ourselves, games only occasionally get above interesting <laughs> into like <laughs> worthwhile right like that's that's the thing we should celebrate but it's still the worst things you ever say about a game yeah it's terrible yeah actually to be honest the this will probably be contentious my answer to this question is the word gameplay <laughs> Ooh, yeah i know it, it was a real it was a banned pc gamer word it still but, is yeah. but i have started using it it's, since a, I it's a word that changed. you need to describe a, a a certain component of a you game. can just say play or game <laughs> <laughs> for me the time when i started using it like uh was when i switched to game development and yeah. it just becomes really important to Developers say like use it does this thing affect the fundamental mechanics of yeah. the game the systems yeah. the the, mm. the functions um or is it purely aesthetic yeah. so that's why i use it as is just yeah. as opposed to aesthetic is it does then it you can't quite use is- play you can't quite use play because play is too broader words like you know the play is the act as opposed to 
the set of rules, you see what I mean? Uh, mm, I, so my, I'm with PC Gamer, former production editor Tony Ellis on this. I think as a journalist or as a critic, if you ever use the word gameplay, you can always be more precise than you're being. I would agree, yes. I think I can see where it maybe has value for, for developers, but it has value in a way that shouldn't ever really concern a journalist for whom the look and feel of the thing are always going to be linked. Like, there's a, in a lot of the stuff that I've been writing recently, which are kind of in depth or they tried to be in depth kind of sort of, uh, looks at how things were designed. It's very difficult not to use the word gameplay quite often because you're trying to separate out, as Tom said, setting elements from this element and that kind of thing. I just always feel like I, I, this is why I always think you can be. But it's a criticism, I think, yes, because you can always be more specific about the part of a player's experience. Which yeah, maybe. I, I suppose if you're if you're doing a lot of sort of like dev perspective writing, then I can see where you'd adopt that terminology. But like, like it's I always worth this, a debate. Like, it's always worth an internal debate. I've been out of been away from PC gaming for three months now, and I haven't used that word once. Like it just it's gone. Congratulations. No, but like I've never felt that compulsion. <laughs> right? Like I have no use for it. I've never felt, hit a situation where yeah. it would mean anything. Yeah. Like I really do think it's a it's a weird. Um, I, I like one of the reasons I dislike. It's a bit it, like horseback. <laughs> yeah when you say i'm riding on horseback yeah exactly as opposed to yeah problem with bethesda is they always try and gameplay it <laughs> yeah exactly they always try and gameplay it into that mountain you can go there <laughs> smooth <laughs> um yeah like it's um i think it's a weird i think it's a it has a uh has the effect of sort of breaking down a game into its component parts in a way that I feel diminishes the whole of what a game is. It's, it's a whole, it's a hangover from extremely technical descriptions of how games operate, which may be why it remains more useful for people who actually make games and people who I think experience them. Um, but, and I think its use encourages that technical view of games in the audience, which isn't necessarily helpful because it's not, you know, the games are super complicated experiences. They're made up of lots of, discrete things and discrete mechanics and discrete feedback loops and animations and sounds and all of these different things and if you're trying to describe a game accurately mm. it's a complicated thing like and i feel i've always felt the gameplay is a cop-out like yeah you know that's the hill i can die on <laughs> gameplay hill <laughs> <laughs> Why did you have to call it this? <laughs> what did I just say? <laughs> Scatter my ashes on mechanics and sound. <laughs> um, hang on to that one. Uh, Daniel writes, <clears throat> Hey folks, I don't have a witty portmanteau on the name of the podcast. Sorry, I'm a computer... Oh, <laughs> <laughs> It's understandable the then. <laughs> He's not a computer. Famously bad. <laughs> He's a <months>. human man. <laughs> um, I'm at the University of Washington in Tacoma studying computer engineering and data science, and I'll leave it up to the audience to figure out how I managed to skip <laughs> to the second half of that sentence. Um, I analyze wireless sensor networks and such. It's a fun gig. I spend a lot of time thinking about machine learning, and I happen to be playing a lot of Endless Space 2 as I'm now off for the summer from school. Diplomacy, as in most 4X games in Endless Space 2, is boring and dull. What would you think about a developer implementing a rating system for a single-player game where you rate the decisions an AI made against you 
and the where those ratings would go into weighing the future decisions that AI would make. Would you accept A-B testing on a single-player content like this, even if it meant you might be in the bucket of people that hate a design decision? Daniel. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting area. Um, the obvious potential problem is that um, is a player motivated to make the AI harder? Like, if you're asking them, did that perform well against you and they actually found the game really easy, they might be tempted to lie and say, oh yeah, that was perfect uh, because they, you know, don't want the AI to get too good or you never really know what the player's motives are. You can ask, you can tell them what you're looking for and say, we want to make the AI better, please help us. But they might fight against you. They might, you know. In a local, in a, in a, in the locals, if it's used locally only and not globally, that means the, okay, yes. the game is the player is kind of shaping the game they want to play. So it only changes theirs. Yeah. yeah. If you were, but for global still, information, maybe that is a bit. Yeah, I wonder how how players would react to it because there is a, a sort of a general problem where, like, if you give people a way to make things easier for themselves, even if it won't make it more fun and they have no reason to think it will make it more fun. They feel incentivized to take it. It depends how kind of in-game it is. I was, um, the thing that springs to mind is um, Infinity Factory, where after every puzzle it would ask you like, how hard did you find this and how much do you enjoy it? And you could say like, uh, you know, too easy, just right, too hard. And how much do you enjoy it? Like, didn't enjoy it all right or enjoyed it a lot. And I would always say, too hard, and I enjoyed it a lot. <laughs> I'm, I'm asking you to make this easier, but don't make it easier. It's great. Because <laughs> I always felt that at the end of it, it's like, God, that was just at the limit of my ability. I, like, that was really brutal, and I feel exhausted. And uh, But yeah, I loved it. <laughs> and it's like, it's interesting that um, that they chose to ask those questions separately because really there's yeah, definitely there's a lot of designers who would assume that too hard means i didn't enjoy it and there's a lot of designers who would assume that you know but i think yeah design like part of design is to understand what people are telling them about a game and you know really as opposed to you know the words people say and the questions that you ask them to to kind of to, to understand what they actually feel yeah um quite a sort of a delicate art I'd be really interested, actually, because I've seen, you know, Infinity Factory did it. Um, one of the Assassin's Creed games asks you to rate the missions you just played. It's kind of done as part of the Abstergo. Unity again, I think. Right. Um, and, but, but the, it, it really is part of the game. Like it is being sent to Ubisoft. Um, and I would really like to know, maybe our listeners can help us out. Um, if there is any, if anyone's ever talked about the data they got from that kind of thing and whether it was useful and what they did with it. Like, cause that, it seems like a good idea in theory, and I'm sure there's like you know, you if you've got the right sort of telemetry in the game that you're seeing players' decisions, you know, that's probably when analysed with the right kind of statistical sort of yeah. Whatnot, surely that's probably more valuable. So that is what mobile games do to like yeah. crazy extents, is they have a really deep analytic system. Well, I'm saying mobile games like the really. Uh, serious big companies who who make a lot of money doing this uh have incredibly sophisticated metric systems and they learn everything about how their players behave and everything their players did and uh optimize for that because a lot of those games are, are trying to optimize for money right they have a really measurable success metric it's like did the player buy the thing how much did they spend and they can just once you have that you can optimize like crazy you may not be optimizing for fun and also if you don't optimize for fun you may actually be hurting your long-term prospects of that game but who knows what the relationship there is um 
but things where it's much more fuzzy when the thing you're optimizing for is like did they like it mm. um because that's harder to measure and it's also more fuzzy when the way you're the, the data you're getting is their opinions and that's why i'm interested to know if this has ever worked because it seems promising to get people's opinions by asking them but maybe the lying aspect is just completely swamps all the real data or maybe just people just but people know, are weird though, differently because i think because it's quite common now for a game you know i think it was devil may cry was one of the first ones that did it if you failed on on a level you know several times you'd <clears> say do you want to do you want to um change the difficulty to easy and like and a lot of people would say like Fuck no, way. <laughs> no way i'm too good for that <laughs> like you know despite probably enjoying the game a bit more if they had yeah i've heard a lot of um heard that from many people like who will just hit a brick wall on medium difficulty and will absolutely refuse to reduce it easy just because it's called easy like if the if it the difficulty they were on was called hard and it defaulted to hard and everything else is exactly the same and there was just one called normal even if normal yeah. was the lowest difficulty yeah. run yeah. i'm sure they go to it but because it's called easy they're just no, not choosing easy yeah yeah it's all in the question mm. and all in the names it's all in the mind <laughs> ultimately yes Stephen writes greetings crocs and cane toads every rpg has a power curve a general feeling of how fast and how far you progress through the game some games are a painfully slow march from gormless to godlike others start you off relatively strong and advance quickly from there my question is what's your favorite power curve what game gave you the best rags-to-riches feeling, and what game made your progress feel worthwhile and rewarding? My vote is for Bethesda RPGs, but I'd like to hear your take. Fans for glistening, Eerie Birdie. Stephen. I think mine, unfortunately, is not on PC currently, but it's Horizon Zero Dawn. Um, because I felt like you do level up and you do get more skills, and they some of those have a big effect on your sort of overall viability. But for the most part, I was getting better by just figuring out the enemies and, and learning that, oh, these guys, if you shoot a freeze arrow into that freeze canister, it's going to you know, freeze this one and all the adjacent ones. And then they're going to take so much more damage that if you then hit them with a, a sticky bomb, it's going to wipe them out in one hit. And there are, I think, like I don't know, 20 different kinds of enemies in that game. And for each one, there's a time when it seems like the scariest thing in the world. And then three hours later there's a time when it's just i've just solved that i just know how to deal with that enemy and i know how to take them out and now they're the kind of cannon fodder and i'm really worrying about this fucking robot mole <laughs> <laughs> the dickhead robot mole oh, fucking moles <laughs> i never really got to the point with those where i mastered them i did get better at them but i was, that was the you just shoot off the little flangey bits so they don't go <laughs> you gotta shoot off the flangey bits of the robot mole <laughs> Rich in podcast titles. <laughs> um, the the so that that is a feeling that I got from Monster Hunter, hmm. um, which is very much about mastery, where you're supported by better getting better gear, but fundamentally it's through experience of fighting particular monsters, and it has a lot of different monsters, and every time you see a new one, it will flatten you, and then you start to just learn its movements and you know you start it telegraphs 
stuff is a language that you don't know when you start playing that monster and you know then you instinctively start to get it and then you start to you know expressly get it that's a really good feeling it's an amazing yeah. feeling there the way it's supported by getting better gear as well is sort of underlines it supports it scaffolds it. it's lovely i think that there actually are a lot of games that that have this kind of um like are quite light on the the real progression system but they the the most of the progress you make is in your own head and in your own skill training i mean actually spelunky is a game where like uh once you can play spelunky well you can complete it in half an hour um but when you start it seems utterly impossible you could ever get out of the first world and you just learn through muscle memory and experience and knowing how everything behaves but um i guess like that's almost not a progression system (laughs) it's just the lack of a progression system um and yeah I can't. I'm trying to think of like progression systems that I liked for how they affected yeah, the stats. I, I thought or... I had one because I, I was also thinking about um, Fire Emblem. I think Awakening in particular, which is a came out maybe three years ago or something. Mm. Okay, it's a lovely game. Um, and that one, obviously, you your stats are rising. Um, it has oh, the level up little animation. It's always been really nice in that game, but. Um, you you know they become definably more powerful in a really nice curve, but really they become more powerful as you start to learn their abilities, and you also um, they start to back each other up in awakening. If you uh, do things next to other characters, they develop affinities, friendships with each other, hmm. and as their friendships grow, they will start to back you up on attacks and will defend you. Um, more often if they're next to you so you get start to arrange them in lines next to each other so to kind of maximize that kind of thing so it's a really hand-in-hand kind of stats and kind of play you know um, strategy sort of hand-in-hand thing Mm. i think actually one of the reasons that horizon stuck with me in this respect was that that aspect of you learning how an enemy works and how to defeat it was formalized in the game as a kind of notebook that you could read and so every time I came up against an enemy, I would first thing I would hit was the menu button, go into my notebook, remind myself, what does a howler do or what does a tall neck do? Where are its weak spots? What are the weak spots vulnerable to? What will happen when I hit them? And so that knowledge, you are learning it and eventually you will get it all instinctively. But for that long period where you have access to it, you have encountered this thing before, but you haven't totally internalized it, the game supports you there and says, like, mm-hmm. okay, just stop and, and look and also that kind of feels like a very huntery thing to do like maybe not physically having a notebook with you but that thing of like seeing your enemy stopping sort of consulting your i guess long-term memory <laughs> of like what is this again how do i approach it and then coming up with a plan based on that is really cool yeah hmm. <clears throat> next question comes from travis who writes entaro adun those of crate and crowbar <laughs> why is tom f so wrong about Protoss plot whiffle. <laughs> what? Also, does his hatred of reverse echo voice effects apply to Shodan's voice as well? <laughs> Just how wrong can one person be? <laughs> Love, Travis, aka TJ Howes on Discord. Thanks. <laughs> um, Alright, well, you got me there because I do like Shodan, but I'm not sure I actually like the Shodan... The Shodan filter, in System Shock 2 anyway, has a lot of elements to it, and there's a lot of different things. Like, 
she'll say something and there'll be like multiple other voices saying that same thing in like rapid echoes and things um uh or maybe i'm thinking of the many maybe it's the many who do that <laughs> it's been a long time it sounds like a many sort of thing to do i you haven't watched any of the postal stuff i've just been skipping it but suddenly <laughs> as as uh he mentioned that i realized like last night i had a whole fucking blizzard law evening because i didn't totally skip all of the protoss scenes around that that climactic mission where to recruit those people and i really liked that and it, even though i had skipped most of the story i felt like i i got the gist of uh this uniting the clans type uh vibe and i watched the whole warcraft movie <laughs> as in the entire like the, the duncan jones cinematic yeah. movie yeah was there that, any, was that there film any? ain't great it, it was i thought i was not gonna watch it after the first like five minutes i really wasn't not into it and then i kind of did get into it and i sort of like it was it's really like it looks really bad i think yeah. i just hate the way it looks it looks incredibly fake and it has the feel of this is too harsh but it 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 has the feel of like a high school production of something oh like they're not in that it's literally at that quality level, but it, just that sense of shooting so far above your production capability. Like we're, we're going for, um, fucking like game of Thrones, the quality, but with far more fantastical elements and far bigger scope. And also we have none of their <laughs> ability or budget. Um, <laughs> And so everything's just like heavily post-processed and there's loads of really high contrast filters and stuff on it. But I have to say, I sort of ended up kind of interested in the story and I ended up following all of the story and it made perfect sense to me in a way that, you know, a lot of fantasy guff does not. Um, and I've played all of the Warcraft games to completion and I don't think I... So I don't know how much the the plot is the same, but if fell magic is a thing in those games, mm. it's not. It is. It, it, it's so the Warcraft movie is kind of like a retelling of the plot of the first Warcraft game, but with loads of stuff from World of Warcraft bolted onto it. Right. So it's almost like it's not. It's sort of like it factors in loads of things that were subsequently added to that universe. So in the movie, like fell magic is is a special kind of magic, that's super powerful, but it drains life. And the reason the Orc homeworld is is garbage is that they've used it too much, <laughs> pretty much. Yeah, <laughs> and it's like so fossil fuels. that's why they're going through the portal to uh, to to get at Azeroth, and that's why the Orcs show up and why the, the whole conflict happens. And if I've been told that before, I don't think I fully grasped it. And so credit where it's due, this movie explained that to me in a way that I understood. I think that's a slight change to what happens in the. That would explain games. why I didn't get that from the games. I think in the games... <laughs> that isn't what Wasn't there demons going Yeah, I think in the games. games they make a deal with a big demon called... What the fuck is his name? It's not Asmodan. He just looks like Asmodan. Asmodan is the Diablo one that looks exactly the same. <laughs> the fuck is his name? I can't remember. Big spider-legged demon dude. Michael. Michael. Yeah, <laughs> Michael. And... um <laughs> Michael from Arrested Development. Michael Bluth is full name. <laughs> yeah. And um yeah. and interdimensional Bluth. Yeah. And uh and they turn green. I found myself quite interested in how <laughs> Dominic Cooper and Tim Minchin would say this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He really looks like Tim Minchin. <laughs> Medivh looks like Tim Minchin. <laughs> um yeah. Unfortunately I've not been able to take Dominic Cooper seriously as an actor since me, Marsh, and Pip watched Dracula Untold <laughs> while a bit drunk. Dracula Untold is a very similar tier of sci-fi, like sorry, fantasy adventure movie to Warcraft. Um, and Dominic Cooper is in it, 
that's an important fact to note. However, when we started watching it, we got completely confused about which man Dominic Cooper was. <laughs> and so we spent the first part of the film making fun of Dominic Cooper for doing things that Dominic Cooper wasn't doing. Dominic <laughs> Cooper was playing the villain who doesn't show up till a little bit later. <laughs> so when Dominic Cooper did show up, this created a kind of like taxonomic crisis of how exactly we made up, made, um, made fun of, of, both characters really um and unfortunately for the film it ends in a climactic scene where um the tragic hero who's doomed to become dracula from being just prince vlad impaleson or whatever his name is um wrestles um the the persian prince that dominic cooper is inexplicably playing um and looks him in the eyes and says something like my old name is dead i'm d-. and he goes to start to say saying dracula and we all said shouted in, uni- in unison <laughs> dominic cooper <laughs> and um he's not dominic cooper it's the other guy but um <laughs> that <laughs> that has forever ruined so whenever um this is a long story to explain one half of this but i spent the entire warcraft movie Every time King Lane is on screen, think, just hearing Marsh's voice Don't shout, I'm Dominic Cooper! <laughs> and I can't not hear that. Every time I, he was in a play at the Bath Playhouse and his poster was everywhere all over, but every time I saw it, I'm Dominic Cooper. Like Spartacus, but, but less so. But no, did you enjoy it though? Because I saw it in the cinema and just had, I, I was, sort of existentially embarrassed the entire time. And I, I really, it was such a shame because I really like Duncan Jones as a director and it's just... Yeah, it is awful. Um, but uh, like, like I say, early on, I thought I was going to just stop watching it. Uh, and there's, it takes a pretty bad film for me to actually stop watching it. I've done it a few times recently. Um, the second Divergent film. <laughs> I made it through one Divergent film. Second one, I'm like, I fucking had it with this. this is You've diverged too far. <laughs> yeah. um, and then I didn't, and I, yeah, I ended up being kind of interested in it, like just on a basic plot mechanics level. I think there's like, there is a, a level of um, like quite a, a big skill in screenwriting to just communicating what is going on yeah. and making it clear what needs to happen and showing that there is an obstacle here that needs to be overcome and the basic screenwriting mechanics that definitely some films lack and um lots of things don't get made because of that lacking and i feel like everything else failed and that was just the basic mechanics were a, pretty good i did an interview <laughs> with duncan jones before it came out and looking back he did spend a lot of time telling me just how much effort they put into making things sense makes sense because yeah. particularly with the fantasy film that is quite hard like yeah. I, yeah, yeah. I feel like i followed this better than i followed any of the lord of the rings films like uh, with those i was like individual scenes i was following and then the overall gist of like why are they doing this so just i've forgotten now yeah <laughs> yeah it's a weird like uh, yeah they set themselves a weird task i think it doesn't make a great case for why that style of storytelling adapts well weirdly i think this is style of sort of overblown highly derivative kind of fantasy thing is good for games because it's big and obvious and the characters are big and obvious and the cutscenes are have a place because they set up the the big and obviousness of the conflicts and characters that you'll then kind of yeah. like act out in some way I mean, there's a huge amount of detail in there but actually you don't really need all of that de- de- uh, yeah. detail to actually get what they want you to get which is epic 
stuff with big men. Yeah, exactly. I'm bad, shouts one big man. I hate that, <laughs> shouts the other big man. They charge at each other. <laughs> then you play Diablo. Like, yeah. like that's, that's all it needs to be, really. Like, but yeah, but the, but yeah, the Warcraft film was trying to appeal to players, like lore lovers, mm. plus the kind of like liking the game broader audience, plus their partners that they dragged to the fucking cinema with them. Like, what the hell? Yeah. That's mad. It was an impossible task. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I don't, like, I felt, I, I reviewed it for PC Gamer and I still kind of like, I gave it a kicking because I think it probably should have had one. Yeah. Really? That's right. Um, but I felt bad about it because, like... Duncan Jones seems a nice guy. Yeah, he seems like a lovely dude. And, like, the, you know... He must have gone through, must have gone through hell. I mean, it's it's like it's the opposite of all of like Moon is such a, a wonderfully conceived balance of plotting and kind of in a very enclosed reserved, place. reserved high concept science fiction, but without never going beyond kind of the yeah. immediately human and relatable in a very enclosed Even space. Even source code looks immaculate. Well. Yeah. yeah, looks immaculate. And Isn't there go- a Moon in World of Warcraft? Well, I mean, that you go to in like one of the expansions was like on a Moon, right? That you go through through a portal. It was. I think it was when they introduced flying mounts for the first time. And at Probably. First you could only oh, that's use when it. they went through the. That, that was the, that was the orcs' old world, wasn't it? The oh, Shadow the... Moon Valley. That's not a moon. Uh, I thought that was a literal moon. I mean, there is. <laughs> I can't. I, I don't but think I, so. I dare say it probably does go to Look, a moon. Or this is all set up for a joke about Duncan Jones making a film about the moon in World of Warcraft. But if there isn't one, it doesn't work. <laughs> I guess we'll never know. Um, but yeah, how did we get on that from? Uh, oh, Protoss Whiffle. Protoss, yeah. yeah, backwards. Talking. I actually really enjoyed the Protoss Whiffle in Legacy of the Void, but I guess I was reviewing that as well, and. Um, it's because it's such nonsense that it's sort of just kind of enjoyable. Like, yeah, that was a side benefit of reviewing things is that it would force me to watch cutscenes I wouldn't normally watch or, you know, absorb everything about a game in a way that I would so normally skip. I wouldn't normally do this, but like, I seriously recommend just watch the cutscenes as you get to the end of StarCraft Legacy. Because <laughs> okay. I, I don't want you to miss some of the best nonsense. <laughs> like, you'll finish it and you'll probably go like, yeah, that's good, that ending. Cool. But you won't have really seen like how how dumb <laughs> it manages to become in a kind of like transcendental cosmic sense. And I feel like that would be a shame. Okay. So just but as you get into the end, you'll know when it's coming, get into the epilogue. I thought it was coming like a mission ago. <laughs> yeah. You'll think that for a while. I'm not sure exactly where you are, actually, based on the last mission you did, but like yeah, you'll you'll feel that way for a while. But then just, you know, sit yourself down and pretend it's a film. <laughs> Pour yourself a whiskey. Yeah, indeed. You'll need one. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, our final question is actually a grudge from Grudges. Uh, if I could reply reverse echo effect to this, <laughs> that would be unbearable. Shall just read it out. <clears throat> Damon writes, and dear Grudge Queen Pip and the Pipistrellas. <laughs> As a rapidly aging, decrepit husk in my mid-thirties, I have a certain predilection for the games of my youth, games I once enjoyed in happier, simpler times, when, let's be fair, the world was probably just as fucked, but I was yet a babe and unaware of the evils of man. 
platform games in particular have always been a favorite of mine, and the recent resurgence of the formula with excellent titles such as Shovel Knight and Ori have brought joy to this leathery old heart. But, alas, a grudge rears its head. While many modern takes on the genre have emulated the strongest parts of games of yore with responsive controls and characterful low-res art, some seem hell-bent on replicating the classics warts and all. Playing the mostly enjoyable Shantae and the Pirate's Curse recently has, appropriately perhaps, led to me swearing like a sailor. Some enemies can spawn from the ground with no warning and seemingly no way to anticipate or avoid them. Once you clear an area, you have to trek back through it and its respawning enemies to return to your ship, even though I just proved I can negotiate that level and doing so again is simply a drain on my time and patience. Then the final and most grievous flaw, appalling checkpointing, or to be more precise, a complete lack thereof. Coupled to the absence of autosaves and a mission I'm sure will discover the hard way, I'm sure most will discover the hard way, and there is an awful lot of replaying the same sections again and again. In short, then, my grudge is this. Games which emulate old-school classics to the extent of incorporating all of their old flaws, eschewing the decades, oh God, of progress made since. I suppose what I'm saying is I wish they didn't like them like they used to. Curmudgeonly yours, Damon. I think um, there's a little bit of this with the, like, point and click adventure games which is obviously mm. a big mm. resurgence in that the, they went away for a long time and now they are in the limelight again and for the most part they are making like a concerted effort to fix a lot of the problems that that genre used to have um but there are still a bunch of puzzles like just in in broken age for example that just make no fucking sense to me <laughs> like where i just had to look up at a walkthrough and even once i looked up the walkthrough i'm like that doesn't make any physical sense that wouldn't be a solution to this problem um, I don't know how Thimbleweed Park fares in this. I've heard generally positive things about its puzzles, but... So, I mean, I've heard mixed things, because I know some people have had problems with the subtuseness. Weirdly, um, my sister, who doesn't play a lot of games, I got her Thimbleweed Park for her birthday, because Monkey Island is her favorite mm. video game thing. And she took to it and finished it really quickly, because, cool. in, in her words, the kind of logic of those puzzles made sense to her as someone who knew those games of old but hadn't played anything like that since so mm. you know can go both ways in fact did had she not needed to return to america sooner we would have um done a pod on it to hmm. zoom in on that so maybe that'll happen but yeah so i think depending on your familiarity with that logic i think maybe going back to that logic can be fun for people but i kind of get what you're saying because that would put me off as well so Hmm. There's that um, Wonder Boy game that's just, I think it came out today on PC, uh, Wonder Boy 3, which is a sort of like a lovely update to this graphics to really kind of from this old Master System game, I think, really old. Um, and they've preserved a great deal of what, you know, the way that the original game worked entirely. And that was kind of. But I, I would be interested to learn just how well it stands up today. Actually, I haven't played it. Mm. Uh, you know, cause, because as soon as you put modern sort of HD kind of things over pixels, I think it sets up a whole new expectation for the way those games work. You know, you kind of, you expect checkpoints and you expect mm. uh, a level of kind of guidance through it, you know. 
I think you can kind of forgive something that looks just as it did in the past in a way that you can't when it's sort of updated in that way. Mm. But yeah, a good grudge because it's interesting because it's pertinent because these things are always coming back and they are always, there's that sense of whether or not it's better to let a genre evolve or try and reclaim it. Like no one's trying to reclaim traditional 4x so much as they're trying to find ways to move that forward and make it slicker and more accessible right like no mm. one pines for those interfaces i think i'm yeah. probably wrong yep that is all of the grudge slash question slash emails from emails that we have time for this week if you'd like to send us a question or grudge for a future episode you can do so by emailing us at questions at com. you can also tweet us at Crate and Crowbar. The Crate and Crowbar is very kindly supported by Patreon. If you'd like to find out more about our Patreon, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash Crate and Crowbar, and that enables us to do things like the Bloodborne playthrough, which goes up every Sunday, and the Miniatures podcast, which will be returning later in the month. If you would like to, what am I missing? Hang out with our community. You can do so on Discord. The link to our Discord channel is on our website at crateandcrowbar.com. Otherwise, it's very helpful if you could rate and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever. Just if you see like a star or a thumbs up button next to the podcast somewhere, click it. What could go wrong? Unless there's multiple star buttons and one of them is five and one of them is one star, (laughs) in which case click the biggest one. I don't mind. If you'd like to follow us as individuals, I'm on Twitter at CThurston. That's C-T-H-U-R-S-T-E-N. Alex? I'm at Rotational. R-O-T. A T I O A N. Oh, I thought I had it. Oh. Rotatio. Going around. Rotatio anal. <laughs> that does set you up for the kind of content that I make. Tom. People know how to spend the word rotational. Uh, uh, it'll be in the show notes. I am at Pentadact. P E N T A D A C T. Bam. Bam. You're really good at that after 190 really odd episodes. <laughs> 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 Thanks, Thanks for listening, everybody.